Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 46 through 50 of Mason and Dixon. Uh, Will can summarize those chapters for us. Yeah, as they move west into the vicinity of a highway so thoroughly trafficked by traders that Dixon finds his compass thwarted by the vast quantities of iron, we see a few of the daily habits of the crew. Firstly, the nightly drink of the workers, hangovers leaving them so out of commission that Mason wonders at French sabotage. Next, the daily audience, the captain of the camp, Overseer Barnes, grants to petitions and interpersonal disputes. From petty annoyances, repeated jokes, to dietary restrictions, the porridge oats being too coarse, even to small acts of extortion, a certain lady having the habit of concealing the cost of her company until after they've made it to the bed, Barnes will sort out the issues. Except for that last one, those duties of pimpery have been placed in the hands of a young man named Nate McLean. While the boy would rather be treated as a greenhorn and have some alone time to read, the, to read what books he can acquire on the trail, everyone has decided that he isn't one to mess with, and so his attempts at de-escalation simply result in bribes being thrown his way. In a letter to his schoolmate, Nate looks for sympathy, finding greed so insidious even to defy his direct refutations, the brown-nosing intolerable, and the romantic advances unmanageable. The next scenes are made up of the details of error management in such a grand task of surveillance, the tidal duo trading off whose preferred methods guide them from time to time until they reach the Susquehanna. There, Dixon sets off with his chainmen and Nate McLean's father to measure the width of the river, which turns out to be more torturous than expected, while Mason attempts to line up where the ark shall depart the river's shore and where it shall arrive on the other side. Just as they complete the necessary measurements to work these problems out, a thunderstorm swells. In the thrall of Electromania, Dixon wonders at the strangely wide and contiguous bolts, while Mason seeks shelter under an iron-laden wagon. Back in the letters of young Mr. McLean, we see a cream-pot romance strike up between he and a milkmaid, a class who seem to populate the dreams of all the restless folk around, even as we are told that they're counterfeiting the milk. Fearing for the virtue of his Galactica in the wilderness, Nate plans to abandon her as they continue west, promising to bring her with him when he returns to school later that year. The crew has turned back around, heading east to measure offsets, and Mason and Dixon's intimacy has graduated into the realm of the truly personal subjects, coffee versus tea, for example. When they make it back to the geometric and cartographic horror show that is Delaware, they find themselves out late at night, Dixon with a lantern in one hand and a plumb line in the other, as Mason attempts to line him up with certain stars communicating from a ways with a large horn to amplify his commands of left and right. When they finalize these lines, they've created a sort of no-man's wedge of property, not properly claimed by any of the colonies surrounding. The legally murky territory comes to become a strange place of attraction to the secretive, conveniently circumscribing a magnetic hill rumored to house elves. They leave the mess to be sorted out by the proprietors of the bordering Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware, and return to the Susquehanna. On the way, Dixon's dynamic chainman duo of Darby and Cope stumble into regularly impersonating Mason and Dixon, each playing whoever they feel like at the moment they, as they frequent taverns and incidentally send young ladies in search of Mason and Dixon, only to be disappointed by the true bearers of the names. 
Dixon quickly susses out the culprits and initially takes pity on them, knowing how tedious the job of line running can be for those sanctioned only to measure, never calculate, and they consider momentarily entrusting the problem children with some responsibility. However, when they find the troublesome doppelgangers, the sympathy evaporates on learning that Darby and Cope have been utterly demolishing any hope of precision in their entire project by trialing unorthodox methods of counting and frequently forgetting such intentions, lapsing back into normal methods midway through a length. Befuddled by the innocence with which this devastating news is delivered, it only takes a hint at their other suspicions for the case of stolen identities to be sewn up, and they descend into mutual beatings as they blame one another. The party arrives at the river, ready to embark further westward and receive a package from Maskeline, a publication of updated methods of error cancellation in their work. Dixon is peeved by the removal of another source of trustworthy geometry, as Maskeline's harebrained theories about mountainous gravity have turned out more reasonable than they'd all hoped. Mason shudders to remember those measurements on the windward side of St. Helena. Across the Susquehanna, they're so impressed by the Edenic beauty all around that they can't but wonder at having trespassed into some dream world. Summer brings lightning bugs, and Dixon uses some of that weird Geordie magic to funnel some of them into portable flameless lamps to light their tents. On, they draw the line into wilderness, and Dixon develops an overlate case of cold feet. He feels they're being used for some greater purpose, something even more devious than American politics. Mason, of course, centers himself, wondering if Maskeline is French in league with the invisible Jesuit forces, somehow hiding messages in the notes on observations. While Dixon mainly critiques the theory on the grounds of insufficient commercial incentive. The party approaches the Redzinger farm, and both Armand and Louisa are heartbroken by the end of their affair brought by Peter's return. Furthermore, while he's physically returned, his mind seems to only have space for the memories of his adventures with Christ, and he talks Louisa's ear off with them, and refuses to hear any news from her. Depew brings up an idea he'd heard at a sermon once, that all points on heaven and earth can be mapped in relation to each other, and to hell as well. This brings him back to the subject of, in the subject of infinitesimality, supposing hell to be even more physically restrictive than the others. This would of course imply a limitation on the size of heaven, an implication which Tenebrae can only find fault in. As they continue into uncharted lands, Mason and Dixon decide to get to know the region better and create a regular plan for when they come upon crossroads. They split up, heading opposite ways in search of a tavern, either turning back to meet the other if they passed a certain distance without finding one, or continuing on into it. In this way, they find a lot of entertainment along the road. One such day of idle pleasure, Dixon finds the Rabbi of Prague, where a secretive Kabbalistic sect is headquartered. It turns out, according to those in attendance, the surrounding area is inhabited by a giant invisible golem, one that protects the residents, which was created by one of the lost tribes of Israel, one of the native tribes, centuries ago. They discuss theories of metaphysics and history. The leaders there even see mystic meaning in the boundary line being drawn. It turns out one of those number is Timothy Tox, the great poet himself, hiding out from the British soldiers. As he recites the offending piece of literature, the golem stirs, apparently roused by the discussion of tyranny, and they toast it. All right, thank you for that. Um, so let's uh, let's just start with everyone's overall feelings on these chapters. Yeah, I mean, we were talking a bit before we actually started recording that there's not, from a standpoint of like, 
I don't want to say substance because there is still substance here, but from a standpoint of things happening, there's not a ton. Like there's a lot of kind of slice of life stuff here that's both entertaining and at times funny of just sort of life working on the surveying line. Like you get a good sense in those first couple chapters of just, you know, a broader idea of how many people are there. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty easy prior to the, the past section of chapters in this one to assume that it might be just Mason and Dixon and like maybe three or four other guys. But this is like an actual sort of continuously moving kind of base of operations with a lot of people working it. And, and Pinchon gives you a better idea of that through sort of giving you this sort of schedule of, of how the day is going to go, what they do every day the kind of common gripes that certain members of their party have, which is certainly an entertaining <laughs> part. Um, and the fact that there are sort of these, like, you know, for, for lack of a better term, like comical union boss-esque characters from, you know, like a gangster movie or something that go and they they solicit deals and they take care of stuff for the the line party out in um out in the local towns and, and in the the local farms and houses and everything that's sort of what nath has taken on as being his role um and and beyond that we get some more interesting stuff about you know mason and dixon talking about their destiny or their future what what they were meant for the the looming shadow of the seahorse incident and then we have the whole section of of the golem towards the end which i'm very excited to hear luke talk about because yeah. he was proved he was proved correct in a direct yep. comparison between the duck and an actual golem appearing um but outside of that, it's it's a lot of just sort of this is what it's like to work on a surveying line, and you're you're going to get a better sense of what that's like through these chapters. Yeah, I agree that these chapters are kind of more hangout chapters, a little bit lower stakes. Um, I did like I think these chapters. I listened to these on on an audiobook, um, so I'm actually now looking over the chapters and realizing that um, I didn't have as good of a grasp as I thought I did. But anyway. Um, the stuff about Stig, I really liked Stig, the ax man. Um, even the first time I read this book, which was probably, I think about nine years ago, uh, I would have started it around this time, about nine years ago. Um, Stig really stood out to me, um, in terms of different characters. I mean, you obviously focus on Mason and Dixon a lot. And I have noticed in me kind of glancing through some scholarship that there are some characters like that who will kind of stand out for different people. Like uh, one of the scholars I was reading, he focused a lot on on Zhang, uh, who we are yet to meet. But I believe uh, it's prophesied in this chap in these chapters that we are going to meet a China Chinaman, which I guess is an epithet, but a person from China. Um, yeah, the whole the stuff about Stig and the uh, the prostitute, I I enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, just to kind of you know, he takes the axe to bed with him. He yells "Yingle Yangle," which <laughs> um, the "Yingle Yangle" stuff, especially, I thought I thought was pretty comedic. Um, there is a lot about drinking in these chapters, um, which I enjoyed. I mean, it it, it is something that I've kind of thought about in general whenever teaching older literature uh in the past is the role of alcohol in human civilization the role of alcohol in being an adult uh, even the role of alcohol and and stuff like you know like um like how how you know like it would have been hard to find uh clean water and clean stuff to drink uh, unless it was sanitized by alcohol for thousands of years um 
you know, cholera was such a big deal for for so long in human civilization and i do think that people drank i think it was more i've I've heard more about the 1800s and the widespread nature of alcoholism which i think did kind of lead to um the prohibition movement in america but i i don't think that this, the late 1700s are probably drastically different in terms of alcohol consumption um yeah, I found all that entertaining. It is kind of entertaining that Mason and Dixon in the in chapter fifty like figured out this whole uh, system of of searching out uh, taverns and places to drink. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean these chapters were enjoyable. Uh, there's some comedy in there. Um, this the stuff's not as laugh out loud funny as some previous chapters. But overall, I mean it's it's yeah, like I said, these are kind of just hangout chapters that are kind of breezy to get through. Um, which I enjoyed. Yeah, I, I kind of like at the risk of of kind of sounding reductive. I I felt like they were, uh, they had kind of a lazy Sunday vibe, like not in a bad way, just in a very like like Kate mentioned, like or I think it was maybe Luke that said low stakes. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's things happen, and and you know we're moving forward, and and we're getting a lot of glimpses into these these workers' lives and everything. But it it didn't have there's there's not really you know, any urgency, uh, that any of the characters are dealing with. There's no major conflicts taking place. Um, it, it, but it was an enjoyable five chapters. Like I really had a good time, um, reading them. I don't think there were any parts that I really, um, struggled to understand and had to like go back to a couple of times, like with previous chapters. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was nice. It was, it was kind of a nice break from the, the previous few batches of chapters that we've done where there's been, just so much going on and and so much crammed into so little space. Um, it's, it's nice to have these, excuse me. It's nice to have these kind of chapters or these sets of chapters that kind of let things slow down, but in, in a way that it doesn't feel like the, the story's being ground down to a halt, you know, it's still moving forward. We're just kind of, you know, pushing the pedal on the brakes a little bit to slow it down. Which feels very intentional in a way that I don't mm-hmm. know if I could say, is necessarily present in a lot of Pinchon's other work. Like, obviously, I haven't read Against the Day, but his his sort of third big book being Gravity's Rainbow. There is no, like, respite in that novel. Um, it's, no. just, it's just <laughs> continuous sort of assault on your senses and your processing ability. Whereas, you know, with, with every single time we've had a section of chapters, like with this past section, where we all kind of agree, yeah, they're kind of hangout chapters, to use Luke's phrase, or they're... They're a bit more lower stakes. It always comes after some incredibly heavy stuff that may have happened over the course of just five chapters, maybe ten chapters. And so it's it really speaks to just how deliberately I think Pinchon has set down and plotted out this novel in particular, where he knows just all of the stuff that he's going to get into. He knows how he's going to get into it, but he also understands that he can't sustain that over 700 pages necessarily. And so he he puts these things in there, which I think shows his maturity as a writer versus something like Gravity's Rainbow, where I feel like if he had potentially written Gravity's Rainbow, you know, in the in the mid to late nineties, there maybe would have been a bit more uh, a bit more moments of respite in that novel. Yeah, and I think you know I like that you mentioned it. It felt deliberate because I think that the the kind of opening section of chapter 46 has that deliberate feel to it. Like we're, you know, getting a a feel of what these, you know, what the workers are doing on their downtime, 
mm-hmm. um, kind of sensing their fatigue and everything. It's absolutely, it t- has an in- intentional feel. And he does do that in Against the Day. There are moments um, in there where, you know, the, the pace of everything kind of slows down a little bit and you kind of get to catch your breath and and process all the things that have happened while still moving forward in the story. And I think that's really definitely a sign of, of his maturity as a writer, you know, in the, the 20, 30 years between um, Gravity's Rainbow and, and these books. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it strikes me as quite ironic that while this, this is uh, definitely the plot slowing down, when you, when you hear Mason and Dixon, when you think of the Mason Dixon line, what they're doing in these five chapters is the most work they're going yeah. to do in any sec in, in any section this short. This is the most work. This is the most <laughs> plotting they are going to be doing. The most plotting and the least plot. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's some interesting parts of these chapters as well. I mean, I do think it's interesting that Mason and Dixon don't come to like the whole Darby and Cope impersonating Mason and Dixon isn't really portrayed as being a massive deal you know i don't i i've had um this kind of leads into the other thing i wanted to talk about whenever i was in college i had a a very good friend who we were known for going out like going out to parties and bars together and people would ask you know where he was when i wasn't around so we kind of had this whole (laughs) like you know like pairing thing Uh and it would have definitely bothered me a lot if somebody was was you know trying to be uh trying to impersonate him and i um yeah it doesn't mason and dixon don't seem overly i mean they seem bothered about it but it doesn't it's not like a major deal you know you would think that perhaps that'd be like grounds for firing diary and cope um there's just not a lot of there was no there's not a lot of conflict there and i do think that i don't know if that's i don't know if i would describe it as a missed opportunity or just kind of more of a uh example of pension kind of uh, having different focuses uh, than a lot of authors, uh, but I do think that that would be handled differently than than uh, by a different author. Um, that possible conflict, um, and I also I enjoyed the whole the the Nath uh, letter at the end of chapter forty six. Mm-hmm. He does seem to really go off on how misunderstood he is by the party. Um, in different different issues with him being. Um, him having kind of issues that a lot of young people have in terms of being misunderstood and having kind of unfulfilled dreams. Um, I think that there's a few different possible reasons for this, but I do something that does stick out to me from my college years is how uh, misunderstood I felt a lot of the time. And I do think that that's an important kind of aspect of that character and that letter that he sends um, is how he, he doesn't seem to feel like he's fitting in that well and how, or he's fitting in too well and in a, in a bad way. And people seem to view him in a way that he doesn't view himself. Um, which I do think is interesting and is kind of a powerful capturing of, of how it feels to be around that age. Yeah. Well, and, and to circle back on your, your mention of, of Darby and Cope and the way that they were dealt with, by Mason and Dixon, I, I have to kind of wonder if maybe the the reason that they kind of brushed off uh, everything that happened with them is is the difficulty in replacing them. Even though they're only two people, like you're that far into the this major project, they probably wouldn't have had a lot of access to skilled workers that could do this kind of work. And replacing them mid-job and, you know, wherever they were at the time 
just may have been more difficult than um, than was ever really mentioned in there. So that may be uh, part of why they kind of just let it happen and, and didn't make too big of a deal out of it. I don't know. That's just yeah. kind of my speculation. As somebody who, who manages a, a coffee place, um, there are a lot of just sort of jokes. Like, I have a very distinctive laugh, and a lot of my baristas imitate it anytime they hear it. And, like, it doesn't bother me, but it also isn't worth it for me to be like, can you stop? It's probably yeah. just the same, it's probably just the <laughs> same thing with with yeah. uh with darby and cope without assuming just mason and just being like whatever this is more it would be more of a hassle for us to get involved with this than it's worth uh you know than than just leaving it alone um yeah but there is part of me too that wonders if it isn't like and there's no way to actually confirm this but in actually reading through mason's journal as i did over the past week um they are never mentioned separately from one another Every single time one of them is mentioned, it is always Mr. Darby and Cope. There's never just Darby. There's never just Cope. So I could also see Thomas Pinchon reading through that journal, as I'm sure he did, and then going, oh, well, they're kind of like the only other people that are mentioned in tandem all the time. What if they impersonated yeah. the other people mentioned in tandem all the time? <laughs> there's there's no way to confirm it, but that's also swimming around in my mind as a reason why I was included. No, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. I haven't... I need to I need to dive into that because um, I'm I'm really interested to read through that. So I'm I'm glad you did. And you can bring that kind of stuff in. Yeah, yeah. I I kind of got the sense that really they they saw. I mean, that they didn't even confront them yet, and immediately Darby and Cope are spilling their guts about how they're they're truly mishandling their job. Yeah, like they are not good at their job. <laughs> it's it's <Yeah>. pretty bad. <laughs> like seriously, think about what running a chain is. It's basically running out to a certain. Running out using a chain as a length, and then standing still so the other person can run forward, and you just trade back and forth. And what they are doing is randomly varying the length of a chain by one yeah. plus or minus one <laughs> at points they have no clue about. That is the exact opposite of their job. Frankly, yeah. I would have fired them based on that alone. So it it has to be that there there's no there's nobody there who can stand still and hold a chain apparently. Because these guys not only are running around stealing the identities of their employers, although granted, the worst that that seems to come to is, you know, some tavern bills and some, yeah, yeah. you know, some some young ladies thinking that... More mischievous than anything. Yeah. yeah. But really, I mean, really, they're, they, they, they devolve into fist fighting over literally the phrase, <laughs> all content otherwise... Yeah. <laughs> these guys are completely worthless as far as I'm concerned. They're, it reminded me of, of Beavis and Butthead. That's, that's yeah. Darby and Cope for me. It's specifically, and I, because you mentioned the, the chain running, I'll, and I'll keep this short because it's co completely irrelevant, but there was a Beavis and Butthead episode where they were supposed to be selling chocolates for their school, and what they ended up doing was buying them from each other with the same dollar bill until they just ran out of chocolate and still had a dollar. <laughs> That's essentially what this was to me. Yeah, that that I think that is a completely fair characterization of the two of them. They they are just basically buffoons. Yeah, yeah, and it's I I, I love those interactions with them though because they were absolutely hilarious. Yeah, they do seem example seem to be examples of the whole ne'er do well. Um, I think he 
I can't remember in what book. Probably, I think Shlemiel comes up in his other books. The the word Shlemiel. Oh, yeah, in, definitely in the, V. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they do seem to be kind of examples of that where they're perhaps lovable, but they don't seem to be able to do anything right. Yeah. Just goofballs. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you noticed, Luke, but the, uh, on, on at least the audiobook I'm listening to, the the narrator for either Darby or Cope, I'm not sure who's speaking at any given moment, but one of them is, is basically an imitation of uh a slightly lesser version of the Gloucester accent that he puts on for Mason. And I think that's a nice little touch. Yeah, I have trouble discerning which his the, the that narrator's different accents and it all just vaguely sounds British to me. Um <laughs> those sure, accents yeah. can be hard to parse out though, to be fair. Yeah. Um so yeah, chapter 46, um so I so I didn't I had no idea the pinch on uh wiki mentioned the that uh egg slap is a mnemonic device i had never heard of this before even growing up catholic um that it's it's the seven deadly sins um so that was really an interesting thing to learn and and add to that character yeah it definitely does kind of um you know egg slap just kind of sounds like the kind of typical pension like throwing together two words and it's you know it's it's vaguely comedic whenever you think about it, you know, having to call someone uh, that name. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of shows that another aspect of the, the pension naming, um, how pension names uh, characters is, you know, it, it scans is kind of random and, and vaguely funny. And then when, once you examine it more, it actually has some uh, depth and, you know, it adds to the themes um, of the book which I do think is interesting and, and does seem to happen a fair amount with pension, especially when it comes to like anagrams and stuff like that. Yeah. That's something I never really picked up on the first couple of times I read his work. And then once I started, especially once I started utilizing the, the wiki, um, that kind of opened that up. And so, yeah, it's, it always, anytime that I come across a name that just seems almost too random, I have to look into it and just see if there's anything more to it. Well, it generally leads to discoveries like that, so I'd say that's yeah. a, pretty, a pretty good way to go about reading them. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if, if any of y'all thought that uh, the the Nate McLean was, uh, you know, obviously he is, he is clean-souled, he's innocent, but, you know, he's also making a lot of money. Just just kind of get a, getting a McDonald's vibe. I didn't think about that. Fair. What did y'all make of the? I I really enjoyed the the whole argument over, uh, as I put it in my notes, book reading. On yeah, page four fifty seven. Um, I I I think that's the, if I recall correctly, that's the second time we've really had like an explicit mention of of books, um, within the book and their their kind of impact on on people. This one particularly, um was was you know another one of those kind of like what's the value in reading conversations and or debates between the characters um that i'm sure is is was absolutely fun for him to write uh and kind of take on both of those sides of that argument it is interesting that um the the con the perhaps controversial nature of being somebody who's maybe more into books than um other aspects of life is like i said controversial 
Uh, it's an attitude that I've come across a little bit in the service industry. So as I talked about in one of our earlier episodes, I think about, and I think that, that was about Crying Block 49, is I've done pizza delivery kind of on and off throughout my life. And um, some of the jobs I've been able to, some of the pizza delivery jobs I've been able to sit around and read books. And that's definitely has colored other people's views of me. And um, it's been, it's kind of, I do think, uh, I noticed that this job that I'm at right now, it has kind of, whenever I first started before people got to know me, I think it, I think it kind of uh, came off the wrong way to some people that I was uh, sitting around reading books while on the clock. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I I think another interesting aspect of that is I I assume that a lot of the people on the on the expedition are uh, in some way educated uh, and probably literate. Um, but you know, I mean, being literate, I think some people, I, I'm sure, our listeners who have read Pynchon are well aware of the historical nature of of the historical like fact of um, you know literacy having only recently been a uh, an almost universal aspect of human life um but yeah it is interesting that it's kind of viewed as i mean it's it's portrayed as as a little bit controversial to be very into books in this book yeah well i mean it's a i i think it's a i kind of want to say it's but it's a long held uh kind of viewpoint yeah you know, i for mm-hmm. you know similar to you luke i've i've had situations uh where i work uh when i've been doing the job I've been doing or working for the company I've been working for for uh 10 years now um and you know since day one like when I was in training I had a book with me every day in training and I would you know anytime we had downtime I was just in my book and I would always get comments from people of you know like why are you what are you, why are you reading you know why why not talk to other people I don't like talking to other people I like reading books <laughs> that's why I bring a book like I'm not here for office drama and all that like I want to just read a story and mm-hmm. and Books. As someone who has been a, a reader my whole life, um, you know, the, parts of you know these kind of things in this book always kind of resonate with me because I think it there's there's that negative viewpoint of, of people who read as being like oh they're wasting time you know you could be making money or or you know doing all these side hustles and all this other stuff and blah 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 but you know reading is just always seen as a waste of time, um, which I think is absolutely untrue. I, I think it's vital that people read um and you know as uh, my wife is a librarian so like i'm always trying to get people to read and and when people ask me you know like what do you like to read or i i was at the dentist the other day and she asked why you know what i spent my my summer vacation doing and i was i read a lot just oh i I don't remember the last time i read a book and i was like well go find a book find something that interests you and, and read like that's i i i don't like that that's the kind of cultural mindset that we have uh, not we, but so many people have of, you know, of exactly that. Like he's wasting too much damn time reading books is exactly as it's, as it's mentioned in here. And, and yeah. I, you know, it's those kind of scenes really resonate with me. Well, and that's, that's been my experience as well over the course of my life between, you know, working in the service industry, obviously, you know, it, it was kind of expected when I was working as a minister that I did a lot of reading and I did. Um, so that was maybe the only period of my life which which comprised about three years where we're reading all of the time was not seen as strange um it was seen as the norm especially as i was going through seminary but like in every job that i've had outside of that whether it be service industry jobs in restaurants or in 
cafes or just retail, it is genuinely seen as strange, <laughs> for for lack of a better term, or or people don't really know how to react to it, which I find weird. It's almost like they're they're being confronted with something they weren't expecting to see that day, a person reading a book. Um, and it it does always prompt interesting conversations similar to to the ones that, that the two of you have recounted. But it, it is it is interesting that that appears to always be a thing. You know, in the 90s, there were not smartphones yet. Like a lot of these things that we would easily point to as being reasons why people don't read much anymore weren't around in the 90s and, and in the decades prior to 97 when this book was published obviously Pinchon was working on it for a while but it, it's strange to me that this idea that you can read too much or that it's strange that you would always be reading as perpetuated throughout society's history longer than there seems to be any rational explanation for and seeing it included here is is very interesting um and very thought-provoking in a number of ways not just from from your own experience but from wondering why it is that somebody would would care back in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd like to draw a bit of a distinction here because we've seen two instances of conversations about the worth of books. But what we've actually seen is one conversation about the worth of novels and one conversation about the worth of books. And in the conversation about the worth of novels, the person who's standing against it is a, is a he's not quite a titan, but he's a giant of industry. He, he is using, he is literate. He almost certainly has read books. He's just not reading storybooks. And here we have, you know, Nate going to school. He's probably mostly not learning, reading novels. He's probably mostly reading at this point in time with like a classical education at the William and Mary's College. He's probably reading philosophy. He's probably reading math, mathematics or science books. He's probably not doing a lot of just sitting back and reading, a, you know, a John Grisham type work. Not reading um, the ghastly fop. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. He doesn't like reading the ghastly <laughs> fop. It's not what he yeah. wants. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, 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 it's just the, you know, we, we do have in our, in our culture, North American Anglo culture, we do have this, this sort of anti-intellectualism, which generally stands against reading, which I think is what Archibald McLean is kind of representing here, but we also have something that I, so compared to the rest of you, I, I am, I am much more of an extrovert. As a result, I don't tend to take a book to, to, for, for break at work or to social things. And I, just to be clear, not judging any of you for it. I've done that, done it before. I'd happily do it again. It's just not what I typically do. However, that means that I've had many conversations with people who do genuinely only read nonfiction books mm-hmm. in kind of the same way that uh, Wade LeSpark might might have. And it, it is a there is this there is a big distinction between people who are anti reading in general and people who are anti fiction reading. Although, frankly, I find a lot more sympathy in the anti reading people than with the people who just take themselves too seriously to have a good time every once in a while. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is. An, that's excellent. He said. So, um, let's, let's kind of shift over and talk about, um, 
Nathaniel's letter. I, I, I apologize for not remembering who it was that brought it up when we were kind of talking about the overall chapter itself, but um, I, I, f- I really enjoyed his letter. Um, I, th- I thought it brought up some some interesting topics and um, really um, presented an interesting picture of what happens to a person when you give them power and and money. Um, so what, what how how did y'all feel about or what did you come away with from that? No, I I, I agree completely. Um, that was actually going to be my quote for the end of the of the podcast, but. Mm. I, I think that um, Nathaniel's letter represents like a lot of things. We talk often about like how Thomas Pinchon characterizes kind of youthful innocence at various stages of life. Obviously, there's the section of Crying of Lot 49 where there's the children, like genuine children who are playing around the yeah. the, the muted post horn. You know, their 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 inability to understand the the further context of what they're playing around. They just see a way to make a game out of it. And we, we've mentioned at a couple of different points in this novel where Pinchon has kind of gone into this idea of, of you know, this is a this is a death of innocence point, or this is where, you know, you learn something about the, the world and become more of an adult or less of a, a younger individual. I think the same thing is true with with this letter that, that Nath writes out. It, it kind of represents a person genuinely seeing what the wider adult world is like and what some of the implications of that are for the first time, and in particular, the idea of having power and having the ability to amass, you know, wealth through greed is something that he's he's in particularly, he is particularly being exposed to, I should say. And it does read to me like someone who genuinely doesn't understand why this is a thing and doesn't understand why it is that this is how something goes but it's communicated in such an intelligent way because it's it's coming from this person who as will just pointed out is is receiving a very traditional upscale education and and can you know put these thoughts together in a bit more of a of a coherent wording so it, it's it, it it was really kind of i don't want to say a shock to the system necessarily but a, a little bit of that where you do get a genuine outside perspective of of what it would be like to suddenly be thrust into a position with with power and the ability to to gain influence and wealth out of it, and whether or not that's something that would inherently appeal to somebody who has no no bearing to understand those things prior to now. It's it's a really interesting piece of writing that I honestly could have read several pages more of that letter and just listens to him kind of describe his experience on the line and how it's changed his his life up to that point um but of course pinchon has has other things to move on to so we didn't get we didn't get more time even though i would have i would have loved that i i I, actually i find it interesting i i don't find nate at this point in time and i think later in the book he begins to to be you know corrupted if you want to use that term um more more indulgent in, in greed but what i i view these whole this whole chapter kind of as is a, a comedy of errors where nate or well, I, I suppose a comedy of manners where nate is just trying to convince people hey just leave me alone hey what mm-hmm. are you talking about that's extreme uh like oh five percent that i don't want your five percent 
and immediately um, Mrs. Eggslap just says, oh, well, of course, you'll get a little bit more than that. And I, I view the the whole letter uh, less as less. I'm less sympathetic to it in the way that Luke was in in with regard to, you know, the, the discomfort of being young and finding finding yourself sort of lost in these things. But what I found it very resonant with in my life is the experience of being a young man, especially a young white man, um, because as as has become quite commonly spoken about, you know, men are, are often referred or deferred to a lot more than women are. And there there is a, this bizarre feeling where you're suddenly taken as a man by random people on the street and you just say something and it's taken seriously. Suddenly, you wake up one day and what you say is taken seriously as though you have any real input that matters to be given. Mm -hmm. And Nate here is just kind of experiencing the maximum version of that. Yeah, it kind of, it, it in a weird way, um, reminded me of the, um, the, were the hipster werewolf in that it, it kind of almost is like a, a parallel to going through puberty. Like he's, you know, this, this really young man is suddenly has this huge change that's put upon him and he doesn't really know how to deal with all the, the new parts of him in a sense, you know, he's got this new power, this, this new sort of quote unquote respect. Um, and a lot of it is a lot of this letter just reads like him trying to figure out what the hell's going on and yeah. what he does going forward. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Also, when, when you said uh, weirdly it reminds me of, I thought you were going to build off of what Will said and say it reminds you of the Barbie movie, because there is a scene in the Barbie movie that is very similar <laughs> to what Will has just elucidated about yeah, realizing yeah, that yeah. you're a man. Look, we could talk about the Barbie movie for a few hours if you want to, because it was awesome. So. I still need to see it. I want to see it pretty bad. Holy crap, it's so good. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting until it's out of theaters, just because I, I kind of want to give a bird, flip the bird to Mattel, but mm. I look forward to it. <laughs> it's yeah. really, it's very, very good. It's not what you're expecting it is, that's no. for sure. From the uh, opening, literally the opening scene, I was like, okay, I'm 100% <laughs> in now. Yeah, it's Greta Gerwig. It's going to be interesting, at least. Mm -hmm. well, to go back to the letter, uh, whenever I was listening to the audiobook, the line, I'm not the sinister pimp they take me for, yeah um it always kind of made me snap to attention a little bit um it's a really interesting sentence uh one that probably it i don't know it does seem it does seem to fit into the chapter into the letter pretty well but it it perhaps you know it's this type of sentence that if you were to isolate it and ask someone you know what kind of book would you think this was from it'd be more like a detective novel or something you know it's not not something you don't you don't associate the phrase sinister pimp uh with the 1800s or mason and dixon or mm. anything you know what i'm saying um yeah. i did also um find that we could ride our winged pigs side by side through the ether and chat about it all um i don't think that mason and dixon or lot 49 have had a lot about pigs i know that it's it's definitely a thing that Pynchon fans and Pynchon scholars uh, will share with one another is Pynchon's obsession with pigs. Um, I think he's reputed to ha own like 
um, like small statues of pigs or things like that. Um, hmm. Which I'm not 100% where that comes from. Um, but I do think that that's a thing for him. And I do think that pigs do uh, kind of dip in and out of his work a little bit more often than other types of animals. Um, I don't know. I mean, the the line, oh, for someone understanding out here in this endless forest, that is a type of overly dramatic um, thing that I would have definitely journaled in my undergrad years, uh, maybe without the O, and then I'd probably change the word forest. But it is definitely the, the type of angst that I would have communicated to my journal, or uh, I guess I wasn't really writing letters, but maybe in a text or an email, I might have written something like that. Um, yeah. 18th century live journal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that little section I found especially interesting. And I do think it's interesting that we get a letter from him at all, uh, that he kind of takes over as the POV character. Um, cause he's not a, he's not a, he's not a super major character. I think, you know, I feel like even probably Darby and Cope are given a little bit more screen time overall. Um, it's interesting that he did it as a letter too, rather than just, you know, having it as a diff- just shifting POVs in the story itself and keeping the same kind of narrative structure. It's it, doing the letter was an interesting choice. I thought. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think to, to bring up again, Will's point about where Nath ends up being later on, like what, what he actually ends up becoming. I think that the purpose of inserting the letter and getting this feeling or this, this, you know, internal struggle he's having or this internal realization he's having of of his position in life and what he's capable of with with the the power vested in him whether he wanted it or not is one of these illustrations that Pinchon is potentially trying to make of you know what what happens when you're given power what happens when you're given influence what happens when you're given control what happens when you're given the ability to just amass wealth which mm-hmm. he doesn't need or necessarily want as as is recounted in that in that 5% conversation you know do you end up losing your innocence and becoming the person that he becomes later or is it possible to resist that i think that he's he's once again you know playing a clever game of trying to illustrate to the reader what can happen to somebody when they're thrust into that position and how it is that you know, cruelty or greed can can spring from places where it wasn't initially even wanted. I re- I really appreciate the the sinister pimp line as well, Luke. And it's actually I think it's the second time that flying pigs have been mentioned in the in Mason and Dixon. The first time, to my memory, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, was uh, the opening of chapter twenty six, the the America section, mm-hmm. where it says. Uh, for skies grow thick with aviating swine, air men pass up the chance to draw a line. Yeah, it does seem to be a, a riff on the whole when when pigs fly thing. Yeah, um, definitely. The inclusion of pimp also made me do some research, and I learned that is a much older word than I thought. Um, really? Yeah, the first doc, because I, th- I thought that it might be a case of Pinchon specifically using anachronism, but... yeah. Um, the the first appearance of the word pimp was 1607. Holy shit, um, really? Yeah, in a Thomas Middleton play entitled Your Five Gallants. Uh, nobody knows exactly how the word, you know, was like synthesized and, and why Thomas Middleton used it. Like the actual origin origin is, is unaware, but the guess is that it stems from a French infinitive pimper, which meant to dress up elegantly 
and from the present participle pimpant, meaning alluring in seductive dress. Um, so yeah, I, I had no idea that that was where we got that from. I thought that was a much, much more modern term than yeah. it actually is. Interesting. Well, yeah, there's I, our etymology lesson for the week. Yeah, I actually had like a weird faux myth or faux etymology in my head, where where pimp actually started as a fixer, kind of like Nate McLean is being in general here. Right. I yeah. did not realize that it really does just come from what its modern meaning is. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Like it looks like there's some there's some you know arguments in etymological journals and stuff, but interesting, yeah. Well, um, let's move on to chapter 47. Um, I didn't really have much to talk about in here other than I, I really liked the, the whole scene with Mason trying to get away from the lightning. Um, I just thought that was really funny. Like his, mm -hmm. his attempts to just essentially hide from it <laughs> under various things uh, just greatly amused me. Um, but other than that, like, I'm, I, if any of y'all have anything you want to bring up, um, please do. I didn't really have anything else for this chapter. No, I, th I think it is mostly about kind of getting into the mindset of drawing the line. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't get much more out of it than kind of a, a slice of life and then that, that comic scene. There is um, a mention of lightning from Mason's journal that I could read instead of at the end of the episode if, if we want to do that, which do. I believe is probably where Pinchon got this this anecdote from um so let me bring this up this comes from uh page 87 in his journal um it says may the 25th in the evening a storm of thunder and lightning about sunset i was returning from the other side of the river and at a distance of about one and a half miles, the lightning fell in perpendicular streaks, about a foot in breadth to appearance, from the cloud to the ground. This was the first lightning I ever saw in streaks, continued with the least break through the hole, all the way from cloud to horizon. So it seems as though this is something... I would imagine that, that Thomas Pinchon read that section of his journal and then just spun this whole... This well, some of that's scene word of for word in here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And that, and the date line's up, too, because chapter 48 uh, starts on the 29th of May. So that, yeah, I mean, time frame. Yeah. In, that's just like a testament to the insane level of detail that went into putting this together. <laughs> this is exactly why I was enjoying reading his journal so much this past week. <laughs> I know what I'm doing this weekend now. <laughs> I really, I do love the way that Dixon is just kind of, hypnotized by the beauty of these lightning strikes and you know he's right being underneath a wagon covered in metal fittings is definitely more dangerous <laughs> than being in a canvas tent yeah but it's it's pretty hilarious to imagine him just calmly packing a pipe bowl watching mason struggle like just watching <laughs> mason struggle to find somewhere out. to feel safe <laughs> It is it is definitely just another one of those friendship moments where it's yeah, just yeah. he's like, I'm just gonna watch him struggle silently. <laughs> just the, the dichotomy between these two is so fun. Yeah. And and speaking of that, um let's let's talk about the most important thing here. Coffee or tea. <laughs> this is one of the funniest things that we've read so far, I think, in these It in really these. I yeah. really enjoyed this whole debate. Yep. 
Um, definitely like the the description of the coffee kind of going bad and different stuff like that and Dixon being able to drink like the worst of it and then I think Mason is only able to to get down like the the first cup or something um it did remind me I, I think I've mentioned this at least in our group chat that I took a class on Cormac McCarthy in college or in grad school um and it's either in the book No Country for Old Men or the uh, or the movie that there's a character who, um, like uh, I think the Tommy Lee Jones character, drinks a cup of coffee when he visits somebody's house, and he like kind of grimaces and he asks when the coffee was made, and the I guess the guy like had made the coffee like four or five days before, <laughs> and just just kept on reheating it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. which it just kind of reminded me of that which i don't you know like i've never made coffee really at all especially not like on a stove and especially not you know i haven't i've never reheated it after a few days or anything but it did just kind of remind me of that yeah it's it's interesting that um coffee seems to i, I i'm on dixon's side on this by the way i'm very much more a coffee drinker than tea i have tried to enjoy tea and i just never never have um, but it's the, the description and the, the sort of love of coffee that is mentioned throughout this book. Um, number one just always makes me want to have a cup of coffee. And I actually was drinking coffee when I was reading this chapter. Uh, <laughs> but it also reminds me a lot of, of Twin Peaks and the obsession with coffee in that show. Yeah. Um, and how important it kind of figured into the plot as well in a weird way. Um, so it's, it's nice to be able to have like two of my favorite things that center around coffee. Um, but yeah, the, the description of like the old coffee, like I've had old coffee, I've had like day old coffee at most and it's, it's otherworldly. It just, in a sense of how bad it is. It, yeah. Coffee just has that, you know, it hits that breaking point for me at least like when it drops below a certain temperature, it's undrinkable and reheating it is no longer an option. So I try to just beat that race every time. Um, but this was, you know, like, like we just mentioned with the two of them, you know, having opposite views on how lightning might affect them. Um, this was just another just wonderful exploration of these two different men uh, and their character and their respect for each other, even in differing with each other when they're, you know, bickering back and forth about something as simple as coffee or tea. Right. And I, I am I am certainly team tea at this point. Um, <gasps> I can I, imagine so, given your job. <laughs> Yeah, I used used to be so into coffee before I I started working for a coffee company. Um, You know, I I have all this nice brewing equipment at home, and I've got a nice, like, grinder for coffee and and all this. Um, But as soon as I, yeah, as soon as I started working for a coffee company, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't. I come home (laughs) smelling like coffee. Um, I, I, I need to, I need to change it up. So that was when I started drinking tea and, and really ended up enjoying it. Um, which we still have tea where I work, but nobody orders it. So, uh, <laughs> yep. it, does, it doesn't weigh quite as heavily on my mind. <laughs> uh, see, I, I am solidly a fence sitter here. I mm. love both coffee and tea. I always have loved both. I, I, the last bag of coffee I bought was a like, almost $30 for 12 ounce bag of single origin um, Yirgachev from Ethiopia. And that was incredible. But I'm also the kind of person who really does much like 
Colin McLaughlin in Twin Peaks. Um, truly love a te- I love a terrible cup of diner coffee. Diner coffee, it's yeah, delicious. Yeah. Diner it's, coffee is so good. Yeah, I I've never had um the 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 horrible thing that is you know like stovetop percolator coffee that's been sitting over a low flame for like five hours. But um, mm-hmm. I like every cup of coffee I've ever had. So I might I might be the one person or you know the one person who isn't ninety seven years old who likes that. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I think both tea and coffee have great merits. I also, sorry, go ahead, Will. Oh no, you, 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 start. you go ahead. Oh, I also think it's really interesting that so one of the things that I also have done for the company that we're for is I've, I've become what they call a coffee master, which means I've spent a lot of time learning about the the science of coffee and what goes mm-hmm. into actually brewing and roasting it and all of that. It was it, it required. Three three college courses to complete in addition to a lot of other learning time. But and and so some of the stuff that Dixon brings up in this section about like particle diameter and water temperature and all this, it, it cannot have been that precise back in the 1700s at that point. <laughs> like by any mat by any any sense of uh, sense of definition. No, no um, they're having campground so, coffee. That's yeah. totally different. So reading through the that section and seeing him use words that I recognize from very modern methods of coffee brewing and roasting um was was another part of it that that is so funny because he's using those to describe coffee as like much more highfalutin than tea because it's more than just put pouring boiling water onto onto desiccated leaves um, i i did kind of link that with pension living i think in the upper east side in new york city and him yeah. possibly spending time in kind of more bougie and upscale uh, and possibly pretentious coffee places and having to hear People, you know, call thing, you know, say CTW without explaining the what it means and mm-hmm. yeah. different stuff like that. It did kind of it reminded me of kind of his general um, New York vibe that he kind of gains uh, later in his career. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I could yeah, I could definitely. see the him soaking in those insufferable people in the background talking about that kind of stuff. I also feel like we could just read out this section. It is we, we've talked long to? enough about it. Yeah, I, I, I've got a Go for it. here. Um, if tasted early, Dixon has found the fine suspended matter in the coffee lends it an undeniable rustic piquance. Later in the pot, the liquid charring itself towards vileness appeals more to those looking for bodily stimuli. Like Dixon, who is able to sip the most degradedly awful pots and poison, and yet beam like an idiot. Mm-mm-mm. Best jamoke west of the Alleghenies. <laughs> A phrase Overseer Barnes mutters often, though neither surveyor quite understands it, especially as the party are yet east of the Alleghenies. Albeit, at this point in a pot's life cycle, Mason prefers to switch over to tea, when it is Dixon's turn to begin shaking his head. Can't understand how anyone abides that stuff. How so? Mason unable not to react. Which, that inclusion of unable to not react really speaks to, like... (laughs) Dixon has clearly noticed that this is something about him that is going to get his goat like yep. so easily and is specifically bringing it up. Well, it's disgusting, isn't it? Half rotted leaves scalded with boiling water and then left to die and soak and bloat. Disgusting. This is tea, friend. Cha. What all tasteful London drinks that? Pollocating the coffee pot is what's disgusting. Oh, contraire, Dixon replies. Coffee is an art. 
where precision is all. Water, temperature, mean particle diameter, ratio of coffee to water, or as we say, CTW, and dozens more variables I'd mention. Were they not so clearly out of thy technical grasp? How is it, Mason pretending amiable curiosity, that of each pot of coffee, only the first cup is ever worth drinking, and that by the time I get to it, someone else has already drunk it? Dixon shrugs. You must improve your speed. As to the other, why I? Only the first cup's any good, owing to coffee's sacramental nature, the sacrament being penance, entirely absent from thy sunlit world of hay, whereby the remainder of the pot, often dozens of cups deep, represents the price for enjoying that first perfect cup. Folly, cries Mason. Why, every <laughs> cup of tea is perfect? For what? Curing hides? <laughs> <laughs> I love that that Dixon says, as we say, like he's yeah. <laughs> some kind of coffee sommelier. Yeah, and I, and I love his purposeful mispronunciation of tea later. He says, with your yeah. tea, as if he's <laughs> deliberately trying to say it in a much more posh manner. And furthermore, beyond the beyond the jargon being anachronistic, almost certainly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's totally possible that especially somebody like Dixon, who is totally he's not a scientist technically, but he is a scientifically minded person. Mm -hmm. He's the kind of guy who would come up with stupid terms and like <laughs> what he's the kind of guy who today <laughs> would absolutely keep a notebook based on how he made his coffee every morning. Yep. Oh, my um, God. I hadn't even thought of that's fair. And so, like, you know, the idea of him having these random terms off the top of his head, okay, whatever, crazy people are crazy every, no matter what century. Um, on, on the other hand, the, sorry for that siren. It'll be gone in just a second. Uh, but the, the, the nature, the audacity to, na to, to mention mean particle diameter <laughs> which i don't know if any of you are very aware of grinding mechanics yeah we have mm -hmm. not had um any degree of precision in grinding in until like the last hundred years really if that even yeah 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 it's, it's one of the more complicated mechanical things we do very regularly like coffee grinders are the most expensive part of getting into high-end yeah. coffee except mm -hmm. for espresso machines and it's it's just the idea that mean particle diameter for him being important must imply that he is taking like a mortar and pestle and smashing up the beans and then like sifting them out with a screen. Right. Like laying them out to get a good look at them, make sure there's no like oversized bits. Yeah, like going through with a tweezer or something. Yeah. <laughs> so... So, so really, what what we've discovered is that Dixon was the first ever coffee snob. Yeah, and we have basically. we have this entire industry to blame for his <laughs> his snobbery. Well, Kant was a huge fan of coffee as well, and he may have predated him a bit. Hmm. Fair. What did what did we think of the wedge? So I, I wanted to kind of preface it by saying that that Brett, I think Brett mentioned it last week in his email. Oh, last week, last episode in his email. Um, that the because I, I remember asking if there if the line actually did end up going through anybody's house, and he did mention specifically um, a Mister Price's house, and and here we get that. Um, the wedge, I I felt like this of all these of these five chapters, I think this might have been, um, aside from the coffee and tea debate, might be the most Pinchonian part, just in that kind of vague 
ominence that it casts over, you know, everything, you know, there, there's kind of this weird, like unspoken horror hiding in it almost. Yeah. There, there is something that feels almost otherworldly in the way they describe the wedge. That's for sure. Yeah, it's almost a sense of body horror, but applied to geo- mm-hmm. geography, which mm-hmm. interestingly. Kind of like earlier with the um, St. Helena and the, the, the island as a living being. It has that kind of similar vibe. Yeah, exactly. Which we do get a callback to within mm-hmm. these chapters. Well. And I, I'm very curious. Uh, I don't know if Brett would have found anything regarding this. The, the Iron Hill in in the wedge you know there there were numerous mountains across the original col- colonies and throughout the modern midwest that that are you know have been excavated and found shards i'm curious as to whether there really was something like that but full of metal in delaware yeah i'd be curious to know that as well I do have the uh, the mention of the line going through somebody's house from uh, Mason's journal, too, that I can read. Oh, yes. Um, this comes from page 81 of Mason's journal, and I'll start with just the, the entries that this is a part of. April 5th, began to run the western line in direction of the mean of the four marks. April 6th, continued ditto. April 7th, Sunday. April 8th, continued ditto. Crossed White Clay Creek at the distance from the postmarked west, 15 miles south of Philadelphia. One mile, 58 chains. April 9th, continued ditto. April 10th, continued ditto. Crossed Little Christiana Creek at a distance from ditto, postmarked west, 3 miles, 25 chains. At 3 miles, 49 chains, went through Mr. Price's house. April 11th, continued ditto. 4 miles, 9 chains to Great Christiana Creek. And then at a later point in the journal, he mentions... uh, Mr. Price's house is a as a a point of reference in distance to somewhere else that they're surveying as well. So there's there's no further discussion of of what happened there, but just the fact that the chains did indeed go through his house. What did y'all make of the the conversation about the chain man's sorrows and the the use of um, instruments that did not belong to uh, their their user? Well, I can see a couple of different ways to think about it. The the first one that comes to mind is to refer back to the crying of Lot 49 with um, Stanley Kotex. His big bugbear in that book is more or less the, the the fact that, you know, if you're an engineer working in a modern aerospace firm, you know, you're you're signing away your essentially your inventorship. You're signing it away to be part of this conglomerate. And in, in some sense, you could view Mason as a very early participant in that sort of system. As a person who works for the Royal Society, he never owns any of his own tools, and so he never grows attached to any of them, because they're not his. Mm-hmm. And you you can see how, when you're given power, that might not be destabilizing or discouraging. But at least in the case of Darby and Cope, that according to Dixon's mind-reading... You know, it, it it eats away at them. Yeah, true enough. Not to mention that it seems though, even though the tools don't technically belong to Mason, he still is developing an attachment to it. Either that, or Dixon thinks he is and is making fun of him for doing so. Mm-hmm. So there, there still is a inability to 
to escape that that idea, even from somebody who has no reason to. Yeah, and I, I worked uh, construction for a lot of my high school years. My dad owns a construction company, so I'd work for him in the summer. And I definitely knew people like this that would have tools, even even simple things like tape measures or or levels or you know real basic things that were very dear to them and they did not like other people using them or at least if someone was going to use it it had to either be under their direct supervision or someone that they really really trusted um but i knew a guy i knew a carpenter who would uh he had extra set of tools that he would give to people when they needed to borrow something that he you know that was his like a particular uh a saw or i remember he had a plane uh hand plane that he liked to use that he did not want anyone else touching i learned that the hard way um, so I, I kind of had flashbacks to that when I was reading this section. Yeah, I, I can speak to that a little bit. I, uh, I went to not a rural college, but a college that had a lot of, you know, oil field type people. Um, so, you know, open carry of a firearm was pretty common mm-hmm. on the campus. So I carried big old pocket knives around and, um, you know, I would always carry a secondary one because people always ask you for a knife and then they always go to do something stupid, like use it to drive a screw or to try to like open a package that's, you know, not being, that doesn't need to be cut, but needs to be like levered open or something. So I always carried around a a second knife for exactly that purpose. And I, I know a lot of, uh, you know, in the service industry, a lot of sh- uh, cooks and chefs are the same way about their yes. knives in the kitchen. Um, so then we go, then we meet up with uh, Darby and Cope and uh, their oopsie, as it were, um, which we kind of, I think we kind of covered that already pretty well. So we can, uh, we can move on from that. Was there anything else in, in 48 that anyone wanted to go over? I did realize that in chapter 46, just real quick, uh, the beginning of that chapter mentions um, how many German and I think Prussian um, gun makers are around in that area. And that did kind of, it brought up uh, some memories of being taught about the Revolutionary War in school. And one small detail about the Revolutionary War that used to stand out to me uh, I think possibly because I was um, very into researching and reading about World War II around that time is um, the the Americans the yeah the Americans in the Revolutionary War did um, recruit and pay for a lot of mercenaries from Germany and Prussia, um, which I think they were I think that was um, at least in Europe some of the most expensive and supposedly some of the best mercenaries. Uh, and a lot of those mercenaries did end up um, staying in America, uh, which none of that's clearly stated in that chapter, but that is just kind of the background for that. If anyone was curious, hmm. I just wanted to get that out of the way because I was going to bring it up at some point and I forgot to. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I wanted to point out, it's not very important to the book as a whole, but this is probably one one of you know two or three uses of the term Dumbledore prior to 1998. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it it definitely stands out. Yeah, because uh, Harry Potter would have been published about a year after this. 
Um, all right. Well, in so in chapter forty nine, um, so we have uh, Dixon starting to get paranoid again about um, their their purpose and and whether or not they've actually been kind of constri- conscripted to um, do something that maybe they weren't aware of, and and we kind of get a glimpse into his concern that um, they're not really fully aware of what they're being used for, and and whether or not. Uh, he accuses masculine of being a French spy. Um, and then it, it ends on a pretty funny note with the whole sarong. Sorry. Um, yeah. Exchange there. But <laughs> I thought that was a, 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 a really well-written passage, um, and a good glimpse into Dixon's mind and, and that kind of lingering paranoia that sits with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, you know, because it's been quite a while since, this kind of thing has been brought up directly. It yeah. also sort of feels like Pinchon is just sort of trying to remind the reader, like, hey, this is still this is still in the background. This is still what they're thinking about. You know, keep keep this in mind as 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 we keep moving forward, because it'll be important later. Yeah. Um that's that's really the feeling I get out of it. Well it kinda of, I think it does a good job of of really kind of accurately portraying paranoia in the sense that you kind of can tend to forget about whatever it is that you're worried about for a good chunk of time. Mm-hmm. And then it can just suddenly pop back into your head and then really dig itself in there as it does with Dixon. Yeah, absolutely. I did also enjoy um, the, the appearance of what seems to be a pre pony express formation pony express carrier. Oh, uh, the, yeah. the person who delivered the book to them. Yeah. Um, all right, so then we go into um, Peter Redzinger's uh, Christ Went Away story. I wanted to get y'all's, y'all's thoughts on that and what, what you took away from that before we go into the, the golems, because I really want to get Luke's thoughts on that. But I, I thought his um, Peter's whole story there was really... I feel like there's something to it, and I'm I'm just missing it, or I'm not gathering all the the kind of significance of it. I went back and read it, I think twice. Um, but I wanted to kind of get y'all's opinions on, on that particular scene. Um, it's just now occurring to me that that could be kind of, um, an example of, um, the kind of deist type thing where mm-hmm. you know, God does exist. Uh, God created the world and then he kind of abdicated, um, it also just kind of vaguely reminded me of uh, in the Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, and the books and the TV show, the whole thing about um, how earlier in the history of that fictional world, like magic was a thing. And then possibly because of the rise of civilization and all the trappings of civilization, magic kind of went away. Um, so it seemed to me maybe some kind of commentary. On that kind of stuff, you know, like where uh, in the past, and this is also, this does kind of lead into the discussion of uh, Kabbalah, uh, sorry, um, and the Golem, in that it is a thing in Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion, where there's kind of like a descending um, level of like connection to God, where like I think people like Moses are, are viewed um, as, as kind of like the way that Christians view Jesus. And then 
the generations following them are, you know, it's kind of like a descending and a lessening connection to the divine as time goes on. Um, where like, you know, like say there was a prophet, a Jewish prophet today, well, it would take thousands of years for that person to get, um, anywhere near as important as say Moses is to the Jewish religion today and different Abraham and different people like that. Um, which is a concept I've come across recently, um, in terms of like, you know, like a lessening of a connection to the divine over time. Um, it's a little jumbled, I guess, but that's just kind of what it reminds me of. That makes, I mean, no, that makes sense, especially given, um, the, the later kind of America as a secret body of knowledge thing that comes in towards the end of, uh, chapter 50. And, and previously when it, when we, he's, there's been talk about that, um, kind of, change that america went through from being this kind of mystical land of of you know magic but not really real magic and into what it is today so yeah i think that absolutely tracks yeah there's a lot of interesting religious elements that pinchon seems to be playing with in these last couple chapters of this section because Mm -hmm. i do believe that there is there is the deistic interpretation of of christ going away as a representative of god creating the universe and then abdicating the throne so to speak i do think that you can pull that out of there i do think that when you get into like the very specific actual wording of how this story is told there is a lot of it that parallels christ leaving at the end of the the gospels and at the beginning of acts before the missionaries go out um in particular you know, the, this this part, I'm just going to read it, actually. Um, Christ went away, he discovers at last how to tell her. One morning, the eaves adrip, the bleary sun irregularly brighter and dimmer. One way for no reason, one day for no reason that I could see, Christ came to me and said, Peter, I'm going away. You thought it was hard before this, here's where it gets impossible. Are you coming back? I almost couldn't speak. You must live ever in that expectation. Come, spare me that face. Of course, it is a lot to ask. He seemed in a dangerously merry state. Was it relief at being shut of me at last? How do I proceed without you? What have I been teaching you all this time? I was smit dumb, Louise. I didn't understand the question. Be more like you, I tried. You've been teaching me all this time? And so, like, A, it's pretty significant that the character is named Peter, um given if you have any knowledge of the New Testament, what the significance of that would be. Mm-hmm. But also this this concept of Christ telling Peter that he has to leave, and he doesn't explain why, but he gives him this belief that he needs to expect that he's going to return, and he has to eternally live with that expectation. And that his instructions for how to live with that expectation are what he's been teaching him the entire time. That very Christian reading of the new testament story applied to a person who's not in the new testament so to speak like that is still very much how christians go about understanding christ leaving in 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 the the early uh second century as we we understand it if you're a christian individual um that's how they understand what they're supposed to do until he gets back uh when he whenever he's going to come back at some random undetermined day um it, so it seems to be almost doing this this dual work of definitely referencing deism, but also having something to do with the overall Christian experience still to this day. And the fact that his wife then explains that 
since Christ has left, he's engaging in these kind of magic constructions of these golems. That also seems, to my understanding, to be somewhat of a reference to the idea that when Christ left in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, immediately afterwards, the apostles were given the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, which would certainly seem like magic if they were being done in front of you, albeit it was not, you know, golems necessarily. They were given different, different, you know, miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecy and healing. But there seems to be somewhat of a deliberate parallel going on there. Um, and I, I don't know to what extent Pinchon is doing that for, but it is interesting that it's there. And then he has the additional mention of, you know, Jesus uh, ministering to the Indians and the, the lost tribe of Israel being in America, which seem very, very referential to Mormonism, because that is that is all yeah. within the Book of Mormon as far as what they believe. So there, he's blending a lot of different Christian elements and Judaistic elements in these last two chapters here, or in the end phase of these five chapters. But to what specific end, I'm not 100% sure. But that was what I was continually reminded of as I was, as I was reading through it. I, I spotted a couple of other rhymes, I guess. That's how I'm going to phrase it. There's, there's um, I think, I don't like this, but there's probably to be interpreted in this some kind of grand metaphor for Europe finding Christianity. And um you know the the you know the, the the modernist realization of god being dead kind of thing mm. um but that's I, I don't like that at all um but it, i think it's there um and f further there's also um i i see it as and i it's in this section somewhere and i can't find it right now i've been looking for it the last couple minutes um there is the dropping of the term born again christianity and um, in this instance, we have kind of the most extreme form of what that could possibly be, because people often talk about, oh, I was at my lowest point, and suddenly I felt God with me, and he's been walking with me ever since. And I see this as kind of a, a Pinchonian sort of jab at that kind of meme, saying, okay, but what if he leaves? Are you going to have the faith that you should have had in the first place? Otherwise, yeah, the, the deistic view I, I, I see a lot, and the, the Peter connection is pretty important. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, then we, uh, then we get into the, the discussion of the golems, and um, Luke's earlier uh, theory about the duck as a golem is, as, as Kate mentioned, is validated. Um, so I, I would love to get some more info and input on this from Luke, since I know you've been kind of this has been like your kind of area of study recently yeah uh and just to give the re the the listeners um uh some like names and stuff to look for um there's a youtube channel called esoterica that's um it's right it's a pretty big youtube channel uh it's run by a a rabbi um who is an expert on various like occult and mystic and i think he uses the word arcane to describe the subject material he covers, but he has um, a long, uh, like 15, 16 hour class thing on Kabbalah, Ke uh, Kabbalah, and then there's also a playlist devoted to Kabbalah. 
Uh, I actually haven't seen any of his videos on the Golem, but um, and then in terms of books, um, the Death is Just Around the Corner guy, Michael S. Judge, uh, recommends Daniel Matt's um, The Essential Kabbalah, and then the Esoterica guy recommends Daniel Matt's um, translation of the Zohar. Uh, I've also had some experience. I've re recently read some stuff by, uh, I think it's Gerhard uh, Scholem, I believe is how it's pronounced. Um, who is, I think, known as uh, the top uh, Kabbalah scholar of, I think, the 20th century. Uh, so that's stuff to look look more into if you're interested. Um, yeah, so the Rabbi of Prague, uh, that proper noun, uh, does that's probably, I think, in the Western world, in the non-Jewish world, I think that's probably the most famous instance of there being a golem uh, is in Prague, I believe in the 16th century, might have been the 15th century. I think it was the 1500s. Um, there was a persecution of the Jewish uh, citizens of Prague. Uh, I think even the word uh, pogrom uh, was being, it can be used to describe the situation there. And a rabbi in Prague created a golem that um, defeated the enemies of the Jewish people and protected uh, people of, of the Jewish faith, which Kate had pointed out a few weeks ago that, you know, like the, the protective nature of the golem is a central um, central aspect of the golem. So uh, another another important thing when when thinking about the golem is uh, a lot of times pretty much i think every every um instance of golem making that i have read about uh involves the uh the writing on the forehead of the golem i think it's i want to say it's a meth uh and then and that's what creates the golem is when you or what brings it to life and i, I actually kind of forget what that means in uh, hebrew i'm kind of blanking on that right now but um and then to kill the golem, uh, because golems typically, as we actually see in this section, uh, they grow and grow and grow kind of endlessly unless you kill them. And there is, or yeah, like in their existence. And there is examples um, from the history of Judaism of kind of like the, the monkey's paw thing where you create a golem and then whenever you destroy it, it like falls on you or different aspects of the person creating the golem dying uh, as a result of them killing the golem. But to kill the golem, you have to erase the E from meth. And apparently meth in uh, Hebrew means death or dead. Uh, so that's what kills the golem, uh, which doesn't come into play here. Uh, this is a bit random, but that, that whole thing, the rabbi of Prague and the riding on the forehead, does come into play in a movie that I do really like, uh, which is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, there's a part in that movie where the guy talks about getting a tattoo on his forehead that ends up is like a kind of um, veiled and kind of uh, hard to parse, but definitely there reference to the rabbi of Prague and the golem of Prague and the writing on foreheads of golems. Uh, the last thing I think I'm going to really get into, I have this some stuff I'll probably say after that, but um an, an important aspect of golem making i believe is that it's you know like um adam was believed to be adam you know the first man in the in the old testament was believed to be, have been originally a golem who was um given you know further i think given a soul basically um 
but creating golems, you know, you're creating life. There is, I think, a, a varied discussion in different times in Judaism and different scholars, different rabbis, uh, different mystics have different ideas of whether or not golems have souls or not. Um, but the, the creation of golems is, I think, viewed as a kind of uh, appropriation of uh, the power of God to give life to things. Um, like, you know, it's, it's, it, I think golems can only be created by holy people who are actually holy and faithful and who faithfully follow, uh, Jewish, uh, the Jewish rules on, on life and what's eat and what's aware and all that, which is delineated in the old Testament, especially in Leviticus. Um, yeah, the, and then I don't I don't know a lot about the concept of the lost tribes of Israel. It's definitely a thing that kind of comes into play a, a fair amount in pop culture, uh, a fair amount in kind of white guy postmodern literature. I feel like it's referenced a fair amount. Um, kind of build on some stuff that Kate was just saying a few minutes ago. I did link that to some Mormon beliefs of. Uh, you know, Jesus coming to North America and blessing the Native Americans with his presence after uh, his crucifixion. Um, and I do kind of wonder where Pynchon got the idea for the for Native American tribes to being the lost tribes of Israel. It is the kind of thing that I could see like a weird conspiracy website spouting. I could see kind of, you know, a few different possible sources for that, even just Pynchon coming up on it, coming up with it on his own. Um, yeah, so then there's two more things I wanted to talk about. So the, the part where the, this new world was ever a secret body of knowledge meant to be studied with the same dedication as the Hebrew Kabbalah would demand. Uh, I'm unsure of whether or not, uh, a layman in America in the 1700s would know about Kabbalah. I know that in, at different times in the history of Kabbalah, it's been, uh, something only known to a few rabbis and a few scholars, while at other times it's been pretty widespread and pretty kind of central to uh, the Jewish faith. It's kind of gone in and out of popularity and importance. Um, but there is kind of a different concepts in Kabbalah where I think there's kind of a legend that you you have to be like 40 and have kids and a wife if you want to study the Kabbalah. Uh, because you need stuff that like kind of anchors you to reality. There's different p aspects of that, of kind of uh, what's more or less in the modern parlance, you know, gatekeeping um, about how you need to kind of be a stable person and different aspects of, of that where you there's requirements um, for you to be uh, a study, a person who studies the, or who's allowed to study the Kabbalah. Um, there's also, uh, there's a mention, I'm having trouble finding it right now, but there's a mention of Jesus uh, being a creator of golems, uh, which I don't think is actually in the New Testament. And I'm not sure where that comes from. Um, I don't, I can't think of any instances of Jesus giving life to inanimate objects. Uh, I believe that golems are typically made of clay. I don't necessarily remember any aspects of the New Testament where Jesus creates stuff out of clay. Um, the there the infancy gospel of Thomas is mentioned, which I believe if, is if that exists, which I'm not 100 percent it does. 
sounds like it would be a Gnostic text. Um, and so maybe the Pynchon got that from Gnostic text that Jesus somehow made golems. I guess it says Jesus has a boy made small, as you'd say, toy golems out of clay. Um, there is, there has been kind of uh, a fair amount of links between Gnosticism and, and Jewish mysticism. Uh, Kabbalah didn't really start or get developed until I believe the 12th or no, the 13th or the 14th centuries in Spain, I believe. Um, so there wouldn't be a large overlap between time, like overlap in time between the creation and development of Kabbalah and Gnosticism, because I believe Gnosticism is more of a kind of before the the 10th century or before the 11th century as, as more of a thing. Uh, but there is kind of a, and there are some Gnost or Kabbal Kabbalistic texts that do date back that far to the time of Gnosticism. Um, and there, I I have seen some videos and some discussion of um, the fact that Jewish mysticism and Gnosticism have some overlap, um, have some kind of synergy in terms of ideas arising in the separate uh, religions at, at around the same time. Um, the last thing I was going to talk about is I don't know anything about I I've like I said I mean the golem being so large does seem to speak to the fact that uh it was created perhaps a while ago and that it it, it it's it is kind of it does seem to be a wild golem it does seem to have kind of um escaped the uh the the uh leadership of the Native American tribe that created it but I don't know anything about it golems being invisible while they're moving that does seem to link it to the the uh the duck though um mm -hmm. i do kind of have this weird fan theory about that the whole thing of like um things being invisible because they move so fast which has nothing to do with kabbalah but i personally in my mind had this weird link between that and jurassic park and the whole thing where like you're not supposed to move and the t-rex can't see you oh yeah yeah um which jurassic park would have come out three or four years before this book was published um pension does have a son who would have been around the age where he might have been in dinosaurs and might have seen that movie i could weirdly see that that whole thing of um things being invisible because they're moving so fast being some kind of inside joke between him and his son or him and someone in his family um i do have some experience with working with children and being around children and it does strike me as a type of thing that like a, a four to maybe eight or 10 year old would, would think or yell, you know, that they're, they're running so fast that you can't even see them and stuff. Uh, but that's neither here nor there in terms of uh, Kabbalah. Um, that's pretty much all I had uh, for the, for that subject. So. I appreciate all that. That's uh, adds a lot of interesting context to that, that section of the book. Yeah. Just to fill in the, the bits of information you weren't totally sure on. Um, there is such a thing as the infancy gospel of thomas it is a gnostic work of uh religious literature um it's been a while since i've read it but i don't believe there's anything in it about jesus making golems but the the purpose of that particular gnostic text is to to offer a reading of what jesus's childhood was like um it's it's basically a biography it's a biographical gospel specifically about his childhood um the the word that you would put onto a a, a golem's forehead to animate it mean, translates to truth from Hebrew. And then like you had mentioned, um, erasing part of it changes it to dead. And that's how, that's how you kill it. Uh, as far as the origins of, of 
Koala and its foundational text, the Zohar. Um, it's pretty difficult to figure out where that came from. Um, the earliest sort of references that we have to it are in secondary sources in the 1500s. It, it, it does seem to have first caught on in the Iberian Peninsula in particular, because a, a pretty famous rabbi from the Iberian Peninsula regularly would cite the Zohar in his criticisms of Maimonides in response to, to some of Maimonides' um, writings that were going around at the time. But as far as its actual origin, it's really not clear where it came from or who who actually wrote it or from where. Um, its language is also super strange, not to go down too, too big of a sidetrack, but the, the language of the original Zoh Zohar text is... It, it's so unique that it's actually called Zoharic Aramaic because it's not used anywhere else. Um, and it, it seems to be a dialect of Aramaic that is deliberately a fusion of the linguistic that were used in the Babylonian Talmud and then the Targum uh, Unkelos. And it has like a very simple, imperfect grammar. Um, and it, it seems to be potentially medieval in origin or at least an interpretation, because it has a lot of different loan words from medieval languages contemporaneous to the period in which it was sort of first referenced or discovered. But it was heavily first cited and used by, by Jews uh, in the Iberian Peninsula. And to get into the whole uh, the private salute, uh, which is the thing from Star Trek, I mm -hmm. believe Leonard Nimoy is, is Jewish? Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that I hit the... the he explains, I think, in one of I think this might be on the pension wiki or something, but I think Numoy explains in like one of his autobiographies that that um, that uh, the the Springer's finger spread two and two uh, is is a reference to um, yeah. So the, I think that um, that is yeah. I think that's pretty much taken straight from Nimoy's autobiography. Yeah, he he's he's mentioned several times that when he yeah. came up with that particular uh, gesture, that was what it was based on. So re regarding the invisibility, because I think both of y'all, you know, went above and beyond anything I knew about golems. So thank you for all that. But I'm gonna bring back my um my my pet theory here, and point to Superman. Okay. Okay. Super, yeah. Superman yeah. is based on the Golem of Prague, and Superman can turn invisible. And I, I just see a lot of uh, through lines between the way that the Duck and the Golem are discussed, and the way that Superman is framed in the comics. Again, I, I believe that Superman was created by by Jewish uh, writers and uh, illustrators. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've read the the Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which I don't know if it necessarily gets into Superman specifically, but it does get into the role of Jewish people in the creation of the comic book industry. Yeah, and I I don't know. There there's probably I can I, I I get the sense that there's something to do with the idea of progress being intangible or something that people like to ignore, even if it's right in front of them. And there's this broader concept in all sorts of writers' works of, you know, ma not necessarily magic being in the real world, but people are ignoring it. But uh, the, the idea that things are different than they really are if, you, if you're not paying close attention. And so it, I, I 
can totally see the way that the duck and the, this golem turn invisible, the way they move, as a sort of weird amalgamation of magic and progress that that is just something that we don't allow ourselves to to witness. I do think kind of building off what you're saying, especially with about Superman, uh, is like comics from old comics. And it kind of reminded me of like, you know, Speedy. I think it's Speedy Gonzalez, the roadrunner. Like, you know, he moves so fast that a lot of times on the page in the comic, when it's on TV, you know, you, you can't really see him. He's basically like a blur of, of just kind of like a cloud. Um, mm-hmm. There does seem to be kind of a cartoonish aspect um, and, a, and a comic aspect, both in the like in a few different meaning, like two different meanings of the word uh to that whole concept yeah well i mean we know Pinchon loves comics and, and cartoons i mean hell we get popeyes in this chapter too so yeah um it's it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that he would include something like that or have been inspired by something like that so i wanted to bring up i i've kind of been deliberately staying away from the reddit um specifically like the comments that were done for the read-alongs in the past, I found myself just kind of going over to him for this, this set of chapters just to kind of see what people were saying about it. And I, I stumbled across um, what I thought was a really interesting kind of summation of, of one of the overarching themes uh, in the book. And so I just wanted to kind of share it. Um, the user is, it's, I'm probably horribly mispronouncing. It's either F.A. Halt or Fa Alt. I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced. Anyways, they make a really good point here. It says, uh, I think there are two major symbols present in the book, the line and the ampersand, contraction of and per se and, uh, representing division and conjunction respectively. The line is connected to surveying, the act of separating landmasses, the categorization and rationalization of the Enlightenment, and so on. The ampersand is the opposite force, the expression of the possibility of communication and togetherness across borders, material and immaterial. It is no coincidence that the title is Mason and Dixon and that the ampersand dominates the cover. The symbol in a way defines itself, being a conjunction of the letters E and T, et in Latin meaning and. These two forces, the line and the ampersand, are represented in the relationship of Mason and Dixon, their divisive task and seemingly irreconcilable personalities, and their friendship blossoming in spite of it. So I thought that was, you know, I don't think we've really touched on on that aspect of the story of the the kind of dual nature of, you know, we're we're witnessing both the division of the land itself um and the the joining of these two people, these two main characters and and their relationship that forms while they're dividing or creating a line of division um across this piece of land. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good insight into those into those uh two thematic elements of the book i i i have definitely acknowledged them both separately i didn't consider what they had meant together i do i do wonder and this is something that i i just need to do sometime uh if if you can sit down and map the plot of the book to the ampersand somehow topographically that would be interesting because there there are there are sen- there, there's a sense of looping in certain parts of the book. Yeah. Like, for example, the, um, you know, the Nate McLean, McLean's um, letter in the in chapter 47 when he's talking about Galactica. You know, at that point, the, the book has, you know, shifted away entirely from the parlor room with the, with the family talking about it to essentially we are cutting away from the from an excerpt of a letter 
I don't know. It, it just seems like there's there's got to be something there. Although there probably is not, really. <laughs> you might end up making yourself go crazy trying to figure out if that's a thing or not. Yeah, the, the Mobius strips are bad enough in this and against the day. Yeah. Uh, well, then let's uh, let's move on to our our funny parts. Um, I for me, I I know we've already talked about it. I think it's it's Mason trying to hide from the lightning, and that whole um, scene of of him cowering under the the wagon while Dixon is just kind of sitting back and watching the show, uh, both shows, the lightning and and Mason's futile attempts to. Um, get away from any kind of potential danger while putting himself in potential danger um, was really quite amusing for me. I think the, the funniest part for me was in chapter 46, where at least once in every sentence, Stig cries, yingle, yangle, yingle, yangle, <laughs> denoting something of importance to him. The yeah. fact that it's every sentence, not every other sentence, not, you know, like not every few sentences, but literally every sentence He's shouting and in a language that presumably no one speaks. Um, he's shouting yingle yangle yingle yangle, which you know I don't know Swedish. I don't really know Swedish culture at all. Uh, I do kind of wonder where that comes from, but it just it it always kind of puts a smile on my face to imagine this the Swedish guy with a, walking around with an axe shouting yingle yangle all the time. It had a it it felt kind of like the Swedish chef from the Muppets to me. Yeah, that's yeah. What I was gonna say. Mm-hmm. And it does have yin and yang in in there, which I'm only just now realizing. But I don't I don't necessarily know the the connection that we'll have um, to any discussions of yin and yang, perhaps in the future in this book. See, I think it's really jingle jangle. Oh uh, yeah, that's that could Christmas be true. Person, that's that could be true. <laughs> yeah, I think we covered all of the funny parts that I would have brought up. Um, the only thing that wasn't in the notes we talked about in the beginning with just the absurdity of of the two chainmen not being able to do their job and just choosing random measurements of chain with which to measure all of that out <laughs> and then them getting in a fight with one another uh, yeah uh, Mason and Dixon just watching them beat each other up um that would that would be probably the yeah but everything else I feel like we've we've covered pretty well oh I guess the complaints that some of the axemen have in their like morning meeting that that section is also yeah. pretty funny where they're talking yeah. about like the particular gripes they have and it's clear that some of them have been saying the exact same thing every day and that one guy has a weirdly specific need for his oatmeal yeah. more than more than anything <laughs> else and like the the foreman has clearly just had enough with all of these people <laughs> i forgot about the oatmeal that yeah. Was, yeah that was funny yeah, I I was I was considering choosing that whole section just because I mean that, whether it is the then you must grind your own lad mm-hmm. or or just straightforwardly like you know just shutting down the joke midway through even though everyone's heard presumably everyone's heard the joke a thousand times this guy keeps telling it um and there there are a bunch of other little bits with the uh, overseer what's his name that I find very funny, like when he's pretending later on to not understand um, Mason and Dixon. Um, it, it, a lot of it, and th- this is, I guess, the section I'm going to pick, which is nothing to do with 
overseer. Uh, is, Maidens in varying ratios of indignation to curiosity show up in camp, demanding to see Mason or Dixon, or both, upon meeting the real surveyors. Well, but you're not him, nor you the other. Of course not, reply Mason and Dixon. Which, is, it's just a good little joke, because, mm -hmm. yeah, of course they are not him. I am not him, and he is not me. Well, let's, um, let's see if anyone can score one of Will's quotes <laughs> on this episode. Kate, did you want to? I think yours was going to be the. You mentioned it earlier. Oh, it was Nathan, Nathaniel's letter, right? Yeah, I can read that out for sure. Ahoy, Murray. Nate writes to his school friend back in Tidewater, Virginia. Was there a sermon about greed? Did I sleep through it? Nothing has prepared me for its power, how unabating. Its fertility, how wild. Occasion for it being presented with every tally mark, bottle astray, honest favor, milkmaid's decor, diversion of tobacco, exchange of specie, every numeral uttered, be it upon paper, or spoken low and allowed to pass with the next breath into the forgotten. They will do me favors I do not need. Strings of iridescent trout, July cherries by the bushel, with the stones already out. Land transaction advice that would put me in a mansion upon Rappahannock with hundreds of slaves and no worries forever, i.e. rewarded as panderers are, in every form but cash, a scarce enough commodity at the coast, becoming further west at last only another fabled American substance. What's happening to me, Murray? This sordid haggling out in the open air, Axmen sidling by with knowing grins, grin girls peering apprehensively round corners, popping up from bushes to blow me kisses of encouragement, even Mr. Mason with his eyebrows up into his hat, and Mr. Dixon whistling airs from the beggar's opera. I am not the sinister pimp they take me for. Oh, for someone understanding out here in this endless forest, we could ride our winged pigs side by side through the aether and chat about it all. Sweet face, of course, that's it, without a doubt. They talk to me in high, sing-song voices. Either I look younger than I am, or people assume I am some kind of idiot. This is what books call weedling. I have heard my first weedling. Like discovering a new species of bird. Tis this curse of being a grown youth, well-clapped to life's harness. Yet looking at as I did at thee, men don't trust it. More women than I ever imagined find it desirable. I am obliged to behave as unnaturally male toward the one sex, as cherubically nat neutral toward the other. How is it I nonetheless covet every fair creature who happens day by day to appear in the path of this line, as it speeds its way like a coach upon the coaching road of desire, where we create continually before us the road we must journey upon? The axemen as diligent and unobtrusive as the tailor of Gloucester's mice. Yeah, I, I I think that A, it's I mean it's it's an excellently written section of these chapters, for sure. I mean there's there's several lines in here that we talked about at the top of the show when we were talking about this in context of where it, it laid in these chapters, but you know, the idea of I'm obliged to behave as unnaturally male toward the one sex and as cherubically neutral or the other. It's another great line. The the description of as it speeds its way like a coach upon the coaching road of desire where we continually create before us the road we must journey upon. 
you know, there there's so many good individual lines in this letter that he's writing, but also in in everything that we had talked about, you know, his his description of what it's like to suddenly realize that he is a man and not a boy is incredibly well stated. His, you know, realization that he is being placed in a position where he could potentially become rich enough to have a mansion and slaves him desperately clinging to whether or not there was something in his youth that would have taught him how to navigate this situation and asking his his old friend for whether or not there was a sermon that they listened to on greed if he could maybe use that to parse out what he's going through and his just intense confusion at being thrust into a position that he doesn't understand and and is is worried about where it may take him um yeah i think it's in it's an incredibly beautifully written section and and like i said at the beginning of the show i i could have listened to his thoughts for several more pages yeah if you if you if you hadn't forewarned us that you chose it i probably you probably would have stolen it from me there (laughs) (laughs) um so i think for me it's i i had initially just kind of taken the end of this particular passage but i'm going to back up and and read more of it because as i look into it more and more. It, I, I kind of think the whole thing is is worth reading. Uh, so this comes at um, right after the the discussion of the golem. Um, it's on page forty seven. Um, by the time of Columbus, God's project of disengagement was obvious to all, with the terrible understanding that we were to be left more and more to our own solutions. America, with all for centuries, had been kept hidden as are certain bodies of knowledge. Only now and then were selected persons allowed glimpses of the new world. Never reporters that anyone else was likely to believe. Men who ate the flesh and fornicated with the ghosts of their dead. Murderers and pirates on the run. Monks and parchment uh, coracles stitched together from copied pages of the book of Jonah. Fishermen too many nights out of port. Any renegade crazed enough to sail west. All matters of what becomes visible and when. Revelation exists as a fact and continues as time proceeds. If new continents may become visible, why not planets, sir? As planets are in your line. You'd have to ask Mason who should be here hourly. Howbeit, the secret was safe until the choice ma- was until the choice be made to reveal it. It had been denied to all who came to America for wealth, for refuge, for adventure. This new world was ever a secret body of knowledge, meant to be studied with the same dedication as the Hebrew Kabbalah would demand. Forms of the land, the flow of water, the occurrence of what used to be called miracles are all text to be attended to, manipulated, read, remembered. Hence, as you may imagine, we take a lively interest in this line of yours, booms the forge keeper. Inasmuch as it may be read, east to west, much as a line of text upon a page of the sacred Torah, the Tellurian script, as some might say. T'will terminate somewhere to the west, no one, not even you and your partner, knows where, in utterance. A message of uncertain length, apt to be interrupted at any moment, or chain. A smaller pantograph copy down here, of occurrences in the higher world. Another case of as above, so below. No longer, alas, a phrase of power. This age sees a corruption and disabling of the ancient magic. Projectors, brokers of capital, insurancers, peddlers upon the global scale, enterprisers and quacks, these are the last poor fallen and feckless inheritors of a knowledge they can never use but in the service of greed. The coming rebellion is theirs, Franklin and that lot, and heaven help us, uh, help the rest of us if they prevail. So I was initially just going to do that last paragraph, um, but I thought the whole thing was really um, worth reading. Um, I, I think it's also a really good kind of summation of what Pinchon's been getting at throughout this book of this whole 
kind of corruption of of what could have been with with America into mm-hmm. what it has become. You know, largely in part because of of the greed and and inherent <clears throat> excuse me evil of of humans and which you know as we've talked about before was in a weird way seems to have kind of been amplified over here um because the the horrors that have taken place here um weren't really seen at that time um at that level anywhere else in the world but a few exceptions here and there um but i i think you know this again comes down to this whole concept of you know america had this this potential this um this ability to to be this you know as it as it's called this uh hidden body of knowledge that that could have been a sort of starting over point and and an attempt or an a possibility of kind of expanding and and becoming more as a civilization and, and as a species but instead it's we've kind of taken this huge step back as a result of all the um corruption evil that that we've brought into it yeah very true there's i've been reminded of and this is going to seem like a completely random reference but i've been reminded a lot of the short story the midnight meat train by clive barker as we've read through this book um and without spending too much time talking about that story a big portion of the horror that is revealed in the the last you know third of it has to do with this idea that there seems to be some indelible quality to the land of america that leads to violence and savagery and a sidestepping of ideals for profit um and obviously some of the horror elements of it suggest as to why that is but there's a very interesting just bit of social commentary within that storyline that i i keep being reminded of as we go through through moments like this and the the quote you just read out in your your explanation of it is is another one of those moments where I'm reminded of it. So, so the quote from me, mine's much shorter than y'all's, was just the opening quote of this section, which is when they may they drink. I know I've talked about my college years a little bit too much already, perhaps, but it just reminds me of being in college. Uh, I went to college in a kind of smaller town in Texas. That is is not not an exciting place. There's not a lot to do. Uh, there's actually kind of more to do. It's Abilene, Texas. Uh, there's more to oh, do there yeah. now. There's more to do yeah. there now than there was ten years ago. But mm-hmm. um, ten years ago, you know, I I felt like I did all the kind of cool, exciting stuff to do there within the first year, and then the rest it was just uh, smoking weed and uh, drinking. Um, and especially around the time when I turned 21, um, the phrase when they made, they drink would have described me and my friends pretty well. Mm. Um, I I don't really, I'm, I'm more or less sober nowadays, but, um, but yeah, it just kind of reminded me of, of the good old days as, as they say. Yeah. I've been to Abilene several times. My dad used to live there, so I, I know the smallness you're speaking of. Yeah, because it's not that it's not that small of a place. It's just it feels like it's a small town. It feels town. very small, yeah. There's really not much to do there. Or, yeah. I mean, I haven't been there in 20, 25 years probably, at least. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a little bit, there's, it's kind of a little more bougie and there's kind of a, there's more like kind of typical kind of hip places now. Yeah. But it's, it's, small it's still. Small Texas towns have, do, have been doing yeah. that. Yeah, but it's still it's still not not a lot to do. 
Because, yeah, my mom and my grandma both live there, and it's just about three hours from me, so. Mm. All right. Well, I made it through. Ah. <laughs> Got to try harder next time. Seems like it, yeah. Or at the very <laughs> least, two, two of you could not very clearly telegraph what you're going to choose. Um, but I'm going with 470. Uh, yet there remains to the wedge an unseen world beyond resolution of transactions never recorded upon creeksides and beneath hedges in barns, lofts, and spring houses in the long summer maize fields where one may be lost within minutes of entering the vast unforgiving thickets of stalks. Indeed, all manner of secret paths and clearings and alcoves are defined, pushed over or stamped into being, roofless as ruins. For but a few fugitive weeks of lull before autumnal responsibilities come again looming. The sun burns, the gravid short forests beckon. The soil, when enough is revealed, becomes another sand arena. Anybody may be in there, from clandestine lovers to smugglers of weapons. Some hawking contraband, buckles, lockets, tea, laces from France, some marking off lots for use in some future piece of land jobbery. Insect pests are almost intimidated into leaving, but sooner or later come back. I just, I, I, I find that truly beautiful, and it is deeply unsettling at the same time. Yeah. Panchon's very good at that. Yeah. That, I think, takes us into our most Pinchon part, and, and that is mine, I think. Um, I had initially put down the, the coffee and tea debate, but I think after Will reading that particular section on the wedge, I, I would have to go with that as being the most Pinchon part of this section. Yeah, I, I, I actually agree. That was going to be my, mo my most Pinchon part. And in particular, the quote, um, resulting from the failure of the tangent point to be exactly at this corner of Maryland, rather some five miles south, creating a semi-cusp or thorn of that length and doubtful ownership, not so much claimed by any one province as prized for its ambiguity, occupied by all those who wish hardly uncommon in this era of fluid identity is not to reside anywhere. That sort of zone of ambiguous nature and this idea of fluid identity and uh, you can occupy it and all who wish to occupy it do, but they're not residing anywhere. Um, all of that feels very specifically pinch on in a way that I don't think anything else in these these five chapters do. Well, and I I, I realized I, I meant to bring this up earlier when we were going through the chapters chronologically, but this particular section makes me wonder: do do we know if this is going to Delaware? Because if so, is this commentary on the way that Delaware has become the place that corporations establish themselves i know that delaware owns the wedge now yeah so that's what what was coming into my mind the last time i was reading this um mm -hmm. was that idea that corporations don't want to reside anywhere they don't want to be beholden to laws or taxation the whole point of a, of a company of a, a joint stock corporation is to diffuse the the responsibility to, to nobody in particular. Yeah, that's true. That that's a really a really good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. But now now that I am thinking about it, it absolutely tracks. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. Delaware is a very corporate friendly place. Yeah. And th this is definitely the part of Delaware I drove through on the way to to see the slaughter beach. 
so I can I can verify that at least at like midnight it is quite spooky in this way. Hmm. I think my choice for the most pinching part is um, the uh, the west of the Alleghenies thing. The mm, uh, best Jamoke west of the Alleghenies, a oh, phrase yeah. overseer Barnes utters often. Though neither surveyor quite understands it, especially as the party are yet east of the Alleghenies. Um, I mean, it's obviously a reference to the whole, you know, like the best whatever west of the Mississippi, east of the Mississippi, mm -hmm. which I do. I do think I have heard people unironically say, you know, like it's like the best steak west of the Mississippi and like actually mean it, you know. Mm. So I've definitely heard that said ironically in maybe not in real life, but I've ironically in movies and TV. But I think I've heard it said unironically in real life um and it's just kind of a little piece of americana that i don't i don't think people from like a, a european reader of this book i don't think would necessarily pick up on on that yeah. as some and it's, it's just a very specific thing that's specific to america that um pension seems to kind of constantly be throwing that kind of stuff in there those little pieces of americana i think my most pension part is going to have to be the the second letter from Nath to Murray, where he's talking about milkmaids. And I'm not going to read it out, but it is just the way that it is structured, where it starts off with a true excerpt from the letter and immediately jumps away to give us the context of why all of these milkmaids, even though every everybody is pining after them, people are like humming this song to themselves that's being transmitted through the like collective unconscious. And it's they're they're scamming everybody you know they're watering <laughs> down the milk they're adding snails and they're like i mean i think we can all kind of presume what the keeping it warm who knows how is referring to <laughs> but it's pretty i mean <laughs> the, these milkmaids are not like good people at all no. if they're no. doing all of this like the, these are not like the innocent you know mistakes of youth so that'll take us into our um, email from Brett. So uh, we got kind of a long one this this time around. There's a, he, he gave us quite a bit of really interesting information. So, um, Kate, if you would uh, go ahead and share that with everyone. Yeah. Another very cool conversation, especially enjoyed Kate's comments on Rose Quartz and deepening relationships. Thanks, Brett. As well as the insights about LaSpark's POV in the Leptin section. That's really the central question of that episode for me. How much is the Sparks POV coloring the story? I think one could support a range of answers, from some to quite a bit. Also, the conversation about Lepton buying people to have good music at his parties felt especially insightful. Here's some other bullet points in no particular order. I don't have much to add on either Climber's discourse or Lord Lepton's name. You cover the major resonances of why those two things work very nicely. Re Oster's appearance. Again, Mason and Dixon don't recognize her right away. I think that's part of the thematic ideas in that section. The discussion you all had about LaSpark's comments about Oster being happier was really on point. I think that is coming from LaSpark's POV, and we're meant to consider that when thinking about his character. I did a currency conversion on LaSpark's 1,000 pounds comment. In 2021 dollars, that's like $160,000 a year. Pretty wide error bars around that since prices were nowhere near as standardized in the 18th century. It's really hard to get a sense for buying power equivalencies in today's economy. 
But it's also interesting to note that it took decades after the revolution for the United States to widely adopt the dollar as official currency. Finally, the historical Mason and Dixon really did draw a line through the House of Rice Price. Pinchon changes the name a little, I think to make a rise price joke about a real estate guy. That detail is noted in the Journal of Mason and Dixon, which you can find here. We'll include uh, a link to that journal in the show notes if there's anybody else who wants to, to dig into it. With regard to that last one, I think it's a good example of what Pinchon does through the whole book. He'll find one line or idea in the historical record and craft a whole scene out of it. My favorite instance of that, and a top five thing I found while working on the companion, happens in the Felipe section. I think I may have recorded this in our or mentioned this in our recorded conversation briefly, but here's my note in full. 431.35, Surnam Eel. Surnam, also called Dutch Guyana, was a Dutch colony in the 18th century. There was lots of slaves there. A 1786 issue of the Transactions of the American Philosophical Society has an article by William Bryant titled Account of an Electric Eel, or The Torpedo of Surinam. That's way too close to our story in both time and content to be a coincidence. Might be that this issue of Transactions is lying around our 1786 Philadelphia living room. So, my theory is that Pinchon found this article, imagined it being in the Spark House. They seem like the kind of people who would read the Transactions and then had his narrator riff on it. That's really cool on its own, but I also love how that riffing hits on the big themes of the book. Felipe is indeed played up as much more dangerous than torpedoes actually are, but the eel becomes a synecdoche for the line of the whole Enlightenment project. They put him on top of the line. They use him to try and find iron for use in the military-industrial complex. And of course, a torpedo is also a weapon. So, in a comic section, you get a pretty deep commentary on this whole mapping project. They're trying to harness energy, electricity, and power in a way that's compelling and often fun, but also has a dark side, perhaps like one of those Vohm sideshows. And one more note, this one on rose quartz. I think the move from ooh light to quartz is also meant to correspond to the theme of reducing possibilities to simplicities. Here's the companion gloss. 440.15. Ooh light, quartz. Ooh light is a sedimentary rock usually formed in shallow water. It consists of smaller rocks, oids, bonded together. Quartz is harder, more crystalline. Rose quartz, 334.6, is being used as a marker on the line. Here, note that a loose arrangement of particulates, oolite, serves as a valve, a starting point for a harder, more inflexible substance. Quote, reducing possibilities to simplicities, unquote. Again, hope that's helpful. Thank you again, uh, as always, Brett. And thank you for including uh, Mason's journal in your email. I, I I had a really good time reading through all of that. And I pulled some quotes um, from past things in the book that uh, we, we've already moved past chronologically. Um, if you guys are down to have me read those out now. Yeah, absolutely. I am. That sounds good. Uh, so on, on 65, page 66, uh, I'm sorry, of the journal, we have the following note that I find interesting. Um, January 10th, left Brandywine and proceeded to Lancaster, distance about 35 miles, a town in Pennsylvania, distant from Philadelphia, 75 miles, bearing nearly due west. What brought me here was my curiosity to see the place where was perpetrated last winter the horrid and inhuman murder of 26 Indians, men, women, and children, leaving none alive to tell. These poor, unhappy creatures had always lived under the protection of the Pennsylvania government and had lands allotted for them a few miles from Lancaster by the late celebrated William Penn Esquire, proprietor. 
They had received notice of the intention of some of the back inhabitants and fled to the Gaul jail to save themselves. The keeper made the door fast, but it was broken open, and two men went in and executed the bloody scene. Well, about 50 of their party sat on horseback without armed, with guns, etc. Strange it was that the town, though as large as most market towns in England, never offered to oppose them. Though it's more than probable they on request might have been assisted by a company of his majesty's troops who were then in the town. No honor to them. It was laid to the Indians' charge that they had held a private correspondence with the enemy Indians. But this could never be proved against the men and women and children, some in their mother's wombs that never saw light, which could not be guilty. Then at the end of January 10th, it says, wrote a letter from hence to Mr. Kingston. So that's obviously where we get the visiting of, of different massacre sites earlier in the book from. Mm -hmm. But it includes, you know, other historical details that apparently people in this town just watched it happen. Like, it, it wasn't something that a band of people went off and did, and then they heard about it later. Like, townsfolk just watched this massacre take place and just did nothing. Um, and then, moving on to January 17th, just one page later, Returning at Pequay, I fell in company with Mr. Samuel Smith, who in the year 1736 was sheriff of Lancaster County, now three counties, Lancaster, York, and Cumberland, who informed me that the people near the supposed boundary line were then at open war. About ten miles from Lancaster on the river Susquehanna, one Mr. Crisp defended his house as being in Maryland with 14, with 14 men, which he surrounded with about 55. They would not surrender, but kept firing out till the house was set on fire and one man in the house lost his life coming out. I include that because I find that to be a patently absurd thing, that this one particular individual believed his house was in a different state, and so he, like, he barricaded himself and a bunch of other people inside of this house, and they refused to come out under any justification and just kept firing until... It's not clear what set the house on fire, but it reads to me like potentially the sparks from their guns set the house on fire because they just kept firing over and over and over again, refusing to, to allow anyone to come near them. It's just a very, like, example of just what seems to be a very Pinchonian thing just happening yeah. in real life. Um, and the fact that that wasn't included in the book, I find funny, given that it's right after the section where, where Mason goes and visits uh, the massacre. Um, on the same page, page 67, uh, it is actually the scene where Mason falls from his horse. Um, on February 24th, it says, Sunday, met some boys just come out of a Quaker meeting house as if the devil had been with them. I could by no means get my horse by them. I gave the horse a light blow on the head with my whip, which brought them to the ground as if shot dead. I over his head, my hat one way, wig another, and whip another. Fine sport for the boys. However, I got up, as did my horse after some time, and I led him to the meeting house, the friends pouring out. Very serene, as if all had been well, but... And then that is the end of note. The next day, the 25th, lay to, my hip being hurt very much by the fall. <laughs> um... So again, another example of like that is a real thing that happened. And obviously yeah. Pinchon spins that out into him, you know, seeing his wife and this this very like existential spiritual thing, but it's based on something that did occur uh in reality. Then finally, um these last couple of things are mostly just funny 
notations that I see in there. Uh, Mason is really fond of the word dubious. Um, anytime he wants to describe something going wrong with his calculations, he likes to still put the calculations in there, but then say they're dubious. And it's always that word. He doesn't use a different word for it, but he'll occasionally have lines in there that I find really funny where he'll say like, these calculations were dubious, owing only in part to uh, loose screws applied to the instrument that needed to be retightened. Like he he sometimes will come up with excuses for why his stuff you know it doesn't quite come out the way that he wants it to. But um, on page, let's see here, on page seventy four of uh, his journal, we have. Um, on March 30th, uh, ditto, Messrs. Darby and Cope, chain carriers, came from the lower counties, so that we have the arrival of those two buffoons. Um, <laughs> but then he also will sometimes, I just list reasonings why he doesn't work, which I find kind of funny. So on April 1st, April Fool's Day, he just has the word cloudy. Cloudy, I'm saying. And, 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 and nothing else listed. And then proceeds to say ditto, ditto for the next two days. And oh then finally, God. three days later, says, made more observations for finding the direction west. See them in the sixth page following. Um, and then finally, the the last one that I had that I just found really funny um, was after they're about to start working on the west line. So they've, they've finished the tangent line. Um, they get ready to uh, embark on that that west line. Um, I also find it very funny on the page just before this, page 91, um, June 4th, he mentions a man named Enoch Morgan, which is just an absurd name that nobody would have today, but is a good example of what people were, were being named back then. But on page 92, uh, we have all of his different calculations on where the tangent line ends. Um and then we get the the other mention of Rice Price, the person whose house got bisected on mm. uh, on June seventh. Says note at the point of intersection of the parallel of latitude and the meridian from the tangent point, we placed a post marked west on the west side and north on the north side. It stands in a meadow belonging to Captain John Singleton. Thirteen chains, fifty links to the north of the road leading from Newark to the crossroads, and twenty five chains, seventy three links to the east of Little Christiana Creek. Also, I like how he just includes this almost as if he was excited to reference the ridiculous nature of running a chain through the guy's house also it is 49 chains and 73 links to the east of mr rice price's house <laughs> it is not a measurement he needed to put in there because it's in the opposite direction yeah. but he just includes it at the end and then i just love that uh for a period of one two three four five six seven eight, eight for night for eight for eight or nine days it just says waiting for commissioners <laughs> <laughs> just, just he's he's waiting for someone to allow his work to continue uh and then finally several days later on uh monday the 17th the commissioners of both provinces met at christiana prince in newcastle county on the 18th seven stones were set as marks for boundaries v's one on the tangent point four in the periphery of the circle around newcastle one between the intersection of the periphery with the north line and the intersection of the north line in parallel and one at the intersection of the North Line with a parallel of latitude 15 miles south of the southernmost point of the city of Philadelphia. The gentlemen commissioners present received our instructions to continue the parallel latitude in the same manner we have run it to the river Susquehanna as far as the county country is inhabited, etc. 
And then finally, we have him saying that he is preparing to return to the river. So that brings us up to about where we are now in the yeah. overall narrative. So those are just some of the interesting notes that I found going through that journal this past week. Yeah, I'm going to have to go through this because this, I think, just adds such an interesting layer to the book yeah. to, see, to see what gets pulled specifically and what gets left out. Absolutely. And it, it's also interesting just from a historical perspective of getting to see how somebody actually calculated all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of it is just his calculations. And then after his calculations, he, he puts in the journal information for the, the, you know, the past week or past month or whatever. But you get a real sense of just the level of intense, not just math, but, you know, just the the process like you come away with a lot more of an appreciation for how difficult it was for them to do this like all the adjustments they have to make and you know all of these these not just calculations but just descriptions of where stars are and and where they are in relation to one another as opposed to last week and it's it's incredibly impressive that they were able to do this at all yeah well so just skimming through it for the first time while you were reading out some of those quotes it it, a, a while, a long while ago at this point, I, I was reading um, not a lot, but a few like uh, ship captains' logs, and this this reads so similarly to that. Or mm. it, they truly were writing for, in his case, the Royal Society, his bosses, and in like the ship captains' logs case, usually like an insurance company. But the way that like you can tell that the default is obscure as much information as possible is <laughs> kind of hilarious in its own right yeah brett thank you as always um and and thank you for sending over that link because i think that's an invaluable resource to have and to add to our reading um of this book um i did want to bring up i forgot to mention this um a couple of days ago a few days ago uh somebody on the reddit um had mentioned that they had just started Mason and Dixon on Wednesday, which would be, this would have been last week. Um, and I just, I jumped in there and I was like, Hey, check out, check out our show. Maybe it'll help with, with your reading experience. Uh, somebody else commented in there. Um, and I just wanted to just give him a little thanks. Uh, so this is from uh, user tube reprise, uh, who says, uh, I'm a few weeks ahead of this guy, meaning the, the poster, uh, from last week uh, and you guys have been a massive help definitely making the whole experience more enjoyable so do really appreciate that we're uh, adding some layer of value to uh, anyone who's reading it and uh, that y'all are enjoying what we're doing and we're certainly enjoying doing it um, so thank you for that and yeah thank you hopefully we can uh, continue to add to that experience for you uh, so next week is uh, chapters 51 through 55. Um, so we will pick up on that on our next episode. And we thank you all, as always, for listening. And um, check us out. We're on, we're on Twitter now and Instagram and Mastodon. Uh, so you can reach us there, uh, leave us a comment, ask us a question. You can also email us at mappingthezonepod at gmail.com. Uh, but either way, thank you all for listening. We really, really appreciate it, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Luke, real quick. Uh, so I am. I finished the 
like the first book of the first book of uh, Illuminatus <laughs> trilogy. Yeah. Uh, I am, I'm loving it. It's really good. Um, I don't know if, if uh, Kate or Will, if either of you have read it, but if you haven't, it's, it's have, really yeah. worth checking out. It's on my list. It's a fun one. It's been a long time since I've, since I've read it. So, you know, hearing you guys talk about reading it, um, I'm, I'm excited to, to potentially revisit that one. It's, I, I finished The Eye in the Pyramid, I think, last night. I was kind of powering through it. Um, I do really enjoy it. it uh, it's, really, it's really interesting how it, like, it jumps around so much, and yet it doesn't, like, it has this kind of weird kind of logic to it. Yeah, yeah. It feels more, um, at, at least its, its tone feels more like Vonnegut than, than Pinchon, for me at mm-hmm. least. Yeah, um, but uh, there's definitely Pinchonian elements in there. Um, I just, I, I kind of feel like this is if, if you were to put Vonnegut and Pinchon together, especially early, like lot 49 gravity's rainbow era Pinchon with like, you know, not necessarily early, like mid, mid career Vonnegut, like, um, slaughterhouse five or, or, uh, sirens of Titan, um, that, that is kind of the vibe I'm getting, but yeah, I'm really really enjoying it yeah i i might need something more lighthearted after i'm done with the iliad because i don't know if i've hated a <laughs> fictional character more than i hate hector <laughs> that's it's, fair it's been a long time since i read the iliad and i wanted to to read it because of this new translation it's the first one done by a woman and just the the level of obscene hatred that I have towards a man who does not exist is <laughs> is is really otherworldly. Yeah, that's a conversation I actually had with my son not too long ago, and my daughter actually. We were talking about how book it, it can be okay to like a bad character in a book, not bad like a poorly written, but like a, an evil antagonist kind of character. Like mm-hmm. you can really enjoy hating them viscerally yeah. and it really adds so much to it so they're they're finally they're both kind of starting to realize that now which is fun that is fun yeah and and hector is fine for like the first half but a- after the first half of that book ends man he becomes just increasingly more insufferable that just every single time he opens his mouth i'm like i can't wait for you to die like i <laughs> i i i know that it's happening and i know that you're now doubting that it's going to happen, but boy, is it going to be so satisfying once you die. And yeah, if, if you guys are looking to reread the Iliad, this new translation, I think is actually really excellent. I was going to um, ask, cause it's been a yeah. long time since I've read it. And I've, I've been, I have a copy of it on my bookshelf. It's one of the, I don't remember which translation it is, but who, who's the translation. Uh, the new one. Yeah, her name is Carolyn Alexander. Okay, all right. Yeah, she um, she wrote a companion book to it that I think I'm probably going to read afterwards called The War That Killed Achilles, which is about, like, her process of writing that translation and, like, the research that went into it and, like, why she made mm-hmm. certain decisions that she made and then, like, the, the broader historical context of, of the Iliad and of Achilles as a mythological character. Um yeah, all of her decisions that she's made in rendering the translation, I I really enjoy. She she emphasizes the anti-war aspects of it for sure more than a lot of the other translations of it oh. that I've read, and 
um, she chooses to render a lot of the the actual names of the places or people um, in in what it would have been in the original language. So she doesn't really refer to Troy as Troy. She refers to it as Ilian. Um, and she she refers to the different groups of, of Greeks or, or Spartans or whatever by the actual terminology of the land that they would have been from. So she chooses to to walk a more authentic line in, in representing what those words would be if you were hearing it back when when it was being performed orally. Um, and she does so without losing the lyricality of it while also not stepping into it being too overwrought uh, or esoteric in its word usage. She's it's very it's very, very well done. Did did she uh, preserve the dactyls or is she one of the one of the like sw- switch it to a different mode? Uh, she switches into a different mode. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm. I, I know it, uh, enough ancient Greek to to start to do a little bit of translation, so I'm very finicky about that kind of thing. Gotcha. But I'll have yeah. to check it out. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I I really enjoy it. it. Given that you know that I know like Koine Greek stuff from from my days in seminary, but I don't know enough to to work on translation. So I'd be curious what your impression of it would be. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not an I'm definitely not a scholar or anything. Like I you know I've only really read Fagels in full. But I just, I, I think he's a pretty decent middle ground translator. Mm. Um, but I, I've heard a lot about that one. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I know the Fagels one is is considered like a, a gold standard. That and um, Lattimore are the two yeah. that I hear mentioned all the time. Yeah, Lattimore's for like the the classic folks, and Fagels is Fagels does a very good job of translating the the sensation of Homeric epics. Mm. Like his Odyssey really captures the sense of like rushing waves that a lot of the passages in that book uh, kind of create. Oh, cool! I've uh, I just finished um, a few days ago. Uh, what's it called? Uh, a roadside picnic by the Strugatsky brothers. Oh yeah, I've been wanting it? to check that out for a long time. It's just uh, copies of it are, are a little expensive. Yeah, it's not easy to find. What did you think of it? I was really impressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I got halfway through it, and I was just kind of... I wasn't rolling my eyes, but I was definitely thinking, all right, what is the big deal about this? <laughs> um, but it, it's very good. It's it's nice and short, and it's not like there's a twist that makes everything change. It's just something about the way that it progresses really grabbed me in the second half. Yeah, I agree. When they actually go inside the zone, that book really becomes incredibly compelling yeah definitely yeah uh, i go ahead one of the things that i found um oh shoot what the fuck sorry lost track of what i was gonna say you go ahead uh i was gonna say if you enjoyed that um i really enjoy the the strugatsky's book uh it's hard to be a god that's that's one of their books that i really enjoy um it's a bit more explicit in its anti-soviet propaganda um which makes me curious how it got published, but uh, yeah. it, it's it is a very fascinating um, conceptual science fiction novel. That's that's it's definitely adjacent to something like Roadside Picnic, but it is 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 different in in what it's exploring. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to check out some of their other stuff because I've not read a ton of Russian literature, but I've read enough to know that it wasn't the translator that made the prose stand out for, for mm. me 
Mm-hmm. And I was, I was really impressed. Um, one thing that what I was trying to remember earlier was that I saw somebody online mention that it was like one of the most Russian novels they'd ever read. And people say that about literally every <laughs> Russian book. And my true. God, it was, though. It is incredibly Russian. <laughs> it's like painfully, depressively, alcoholically Russian. Uh, yeah. That, and that's, that's kind of everything that the Strugatskys wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to check out their other stuff. Yeah. They are very quintessentially Russian people. Which, I mean, you really have to be in order to choose to write science fiction during the Iron Curtain era. Yeah, it's, it's a very self-defeating. Yeah. So y'all saw Barbie. I saw Oppenheimer. I've seen Oppenheimer, too. Oppenheimer? I wanted to hate it a lot more than I, than I was able to. <laughs> I liked it a lot. I, I mixed things on it. I genuinely think it's probably Christopher Nolan's best film. I, I don't really? think it's I don't think it's Christopher Nolan's most interesting film. Like if you're talking about from a conceptual perspective, I think things like Inception or Tenant or or you know those more like very Nolan esque projects are 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 more interesting conceptually. But from a standpoint of making a cohesive piece of art that has a thesis statement that he completes in the final moments of the film and in constructing what is a three-hour movie in a way that does not feel like three hours um i thought yeah i think i think he did he did all of that significantly better in this film than anything else that he had made um and he he gets a bit more conceptual in some ways that i enjoyed like he as far as the filmmaking goes like there's these these moments where you get to see kind of what Oppenheimer is imagining in his mind um, and the the sort of sound and, and vision imagery that he uses to represent that is very evocative of David Lynch in certain ways. Um, and he even will like there's there's a really excellent scene where he's having Oppenheimer's having to testify uh, about an affair that he had. And then the POV switches to his wife, who's sitting on the couch behind him. And then Christopher Nolan frames it as uh, Oppenheimer and this woman that he had an affair with having sex in the chair to, to, to actually represent what she's feeling in that moment, hearing this testimony again. Um, so he does some actual like visual storytelling stuff that I think goes further than what he's done in previous films to actually represent what, what he's he's getting across the screen to the audience from an emotional perspective or from a, from kind of an internal monologue perspective. Yeah, How are the, Oh, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. The, just the, the surreality in so many of his movies is just a waste of time. Yeah. And it, it actually has a purpose in Oppenheimer. It's not just puzzle box bullshit. It is actually yeah. like character driven story development. Very true. So that's, that's what I was going to ask about as the characters. Cause I think my, my biggest issue with him as a filmmaker is that his characters are typically pretty one-dimensional for the most part. Um, it, with, with a few exceptions, I think Interstellar was like the one film of his where I really cared about the characters more than the plot. I just feel like a lot of times his characters are there to kind of push the plot forward and they're, they're taking a backseat to actual character development. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think he benefits from the fact that Oppenheimer was a very complicated person in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, because his his character on screen is not represented one dimensionally. Um, you know, as far as and even like the the woman that he has an affair with, um, she's not in the film very very much, but she's clearly a very complicated person who's going through some stuff mentally. Um, you know, so even even some of the lesser characters that don't get a ton of screen time still do have a dimensionality to them that I think is is unlike a lot of his other work. Because I agree with you. I mean, the main character of Tenon is called the protagonist. Like yeah, yeah. he he does not he's not super interested in presenting uh, characters beyond their ability to move the plot forward. Yeah, and that, I think that's been my main thing with him. I, I, and I, I like him. I like what Nolan does. I, I just think typically his films come down to style over substance, mm-hmm. and that's fine because sometimes that's really all I want. I love Tenet. I really enjoyed that movie. And, yeah, and even though it was, as we'll put it, puzzle box bullshit at times, um, it was fun. It just you know it it let me. It was that escapism that I wanted. Um, but when he does good characterization, like like I said, Interstellar, like. That movie was, I thought, really well done. I thought I actually cared about the characters and the, I cared about the journey that they were on and, and was moved by, by the end of it. So, um, oh, yeah, that scene where Matthew McConaughey has to watch, you know, 30 years of messages from his kids. Yeah. Is, shit. Like, say, say all you want about how dumb, uh, what's her name's character is in that movie, um, Anne Hathaway's character. Mm-hmm. Like, she does as good of a job as she can with subpar material. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't, yeah. So you can say what you want about that not being well presented in the film, but Matthew McConaughey's relationship with his kids and like that scene being kind of a linchpin of it. And then obviously when his daughter grows up to be, to be an older woman, like all of that is so well represented and in a very realistic, like honest way. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I, I, I think that that, that was the movie where he wrote it by himself for the first time. Yeah. Um, and so I think that some of that was, uh, was like shaking the cobwebs out a little bit because he wasn't writing with his brother anymore. And that's how you end up with an Anne Hathaway character in that movie. But, <laughs> yep. um, you know, I, I think that now that he's written three movies on his own, uh, Interstellar, Tenant, and then that. Uh, Oppenheimer. I think that he's finally really figured out how to be how to be his own screenwriter now, which is great. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing I'd, I've been hearing and seeing was the representation of of the bomb, and 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 it, I'm I'm glad you mentioned Lynch earlier because that's the comparison that keeps getting drawn is the the bomb scene in Episode Eight of Twin Peaks Return. Yeah. How the general consensus is that Lynch did it better with CGI than Nolan did it without, as far as conveying the the kind of grand scale of horror and, and, and uh, evil that came out of that. So um, I, I was kind of curious what you thought on that. Yeah. I, th- I think that um, obviously Nolan did see episode eight of twin Peaks season three. Like that's for sure. Um, but Nolan is not using the film to talk about the bomb necessarily. The movie is a is is much less about the bomb than I think a lot of people expect going into the theater. Okay, um, it, it is it is significantly more about Oppenheimer himself and 
his life after the bomb was constructed um and what happened to him after after world war ii ended that's that's significantly more what the what the movie is about which is there specifically to play into the thesis statement that christopher nolan makes at the beginning of the film which i won't spoil because it kind of ruins the way that the whole thing goes um so it's it is it is significantly of less importance to that movie uh, so yes, from a standpoint of specifically the bomb itself, like that scene where the Trinity test detonates, yes, Lynch did do it better, but um, where I see more of the Lynchian elements is in these moments where Oppenheimer is is theorizing, like he's thinking about quantum mechanics and theoretical physics, and when that happens, we get other um, kind of imagery that is supposed to be representative of kind of what he might be imagining in his head. And those are, those are more Lynchian moments. Um, the bomb is more presented just realistically in, in what they're watching. Hmm. Yeah. For, frankly, like in general, I, I think of Christopher Nolan as somebody who grew up thinking of Kubrick as the greatest director of all time. And then he got to college and he read like gravity's rainbow or something and just decided i'm gonna make art that makes people's minds melt and (laughs) finally got bored of that yeah and it's it's i mean like oppenheimer is just i mean it's it's well done i could nitpick it to death i don't feel like doing that especially since you know do you haven't seen the movie but like i could complain about it all day yeah. But it's so much better than the rest of his stuff. And it's because he didn't try to do what I expected. He didn't try to make like the atomic bomb into some puzzle box. He didn't try to make like some realization that Oppenheimer may or may not have had into some grand moment. It's really it really is centering the man as the mystery using in, in very much a Pinchonian sense. And I think that's why you get a lot of people on like the the subreddit talking about like oh it's a lot like Pinchon is because he is taking this view of trying to flesh out a historical figure from the limited documents we have about him Mm -hmm. Hmm. yeah I I really want to read the book that his screenplay is based on because it's based on a biography of Oppenheimer called American Prometheus Mm -hmm. um I'd I'd like to read that because uh I think that that may that may color in more of the more of the history that as will just said we have limited documentation on but i i agree and i think that the so like my it not to get on a tangent here that's going to take 15 minutes for me to explain but my issue with twin peaks season three is that it felt way too much like david lynch and not enough mark frost um where yeah twin peaks season yeah where twin peaks season one is a perfect melding of Mark Frost and and David Lynch, where you have this this well-established TV director and creator in you know crime genre and soap opera, taking care of like the small town elements, and then you have this very idiosyncratic like artistic filmmaker, in David Lynch lending his unique brand of I'll say madness to the more supernatural elements of it, and with season three. It doesn't feel like there's any influence from Mark Frost at all. It just feels like you're watching a David Lynch movie for seven hours or whatever the runtime is. Um, And to Will's point about Christopher Nolan, like, you know, reading Gravity's Rainbow in college or something and then deciding that he's going to make art that just melts people's minds. (laughs) I think that uh, he moved more towards, um, to kind of undergird Will's point, a 
a mix of of Mark Frost and David Lynch with Oppenheimer, where there is there is individual scenes that are are somewhat surrealistic. In fact, there's there's one scene that I think is very Gravity's Rainbow esque, whether it's purposeful or not, in which um, Oppenheimer is kind of visualizing the the heat death of the planet basically due to v2 missiles that are strapped with nuclear warheads and the way that he kind of envisions this being mapped out uh, as as hitting key targets on the planet certainly reminded me of pointsman's grid um from gravity's rainbow hmm. well i don't know if yeah. that's purposeful or not but it, it's definitely there so like you you still have these moments of more like you know, mind melting imagery or or interesting imagery or surrealistic imagery, but it's all undergirded by a solid um, storyline and a solid cast and acting and filmmaking um, and writing that that allows those individual moments of of more surrealistic elements to play out in a way that is not present in anything else that Nolan's done. Yeah, that that scene you're talking about to me, it reads. Or it's, it views as straight out of um, well the the analogous scene in Doctor Strangelove, crossed with some stuff straight out of uh, ep- or, uh, section four of Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, that's fair. Well, I I can say I don't I didn't detect much Pinchonian elements in Barbie. But it was still really good. <laughs> oh, no. See it. <laughs> it is it no it, like it really was it really exceeded my expectations in all honesty. Like mm-hmm. I, I I figured it was gonna be good, but it was better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad that I watched zero trailers for that movie. Um I think I saw like the first one and I just kind of stopped watching him after that. I saw the I, teaser trailer from months ago where they did the 2001 A Space Odyssey like mm-hmm. uh, parody, but that's the only thing that I saw. I didn't know anything about how the movie, what it was about, what happened. I didn't watch the like longer trailers or whatever. Um, and yeah, it is it is very different from what I was expecting, but in a way that is is uh, incredibly wonderful. Like it, it manages to ride a line between genuine emotional depth and just absurd camp. Um, in a way that I, I can't think of a film in recent history that has done that. (laughs) Yeah, it never, it never really, I, I, I think going into it, I was afraid it was going to like, um, get too cotton candy ish, um, and, and lose whatever, you know, message it was trying to get across. But I, I, they never did that. I think they kind of stayed grounded enough the whole time and still, you know, maintained a pretty high level of silliness and, and camp. Um, but they still, there was still a surprising amount of depth in there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I don't know if I've ever laughed harder than I did when Ken first visits Century City. That whole, <laughs> that whole montage, yep. man, is yep. so absurd. Oh, God, um, that was good. Yeah, yeah it's 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 amazing it's an amazing film (laughs) yeah no i will get around to seeing oppenheimer i may end up i probably won't see it in the theater so the weird thing is like there's san antonio has one no we have two two places that that can show imax Mm -hmm. and apparently both of them have been having 
routine technical problems to where the movie just will not play for whatever weird reason. Um, so I, I don't have the time to go sit and hope it works and then find out it doesn't and then have to sit and wait for another showing. So, yeah, I would have loved to have had, had a chance to see it in IMAX because obviously it's the only movie that's ever been shot completely in IMAX film, but there are no IMAX theaters near me where I live in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, if you do put off seeing it uh, until after theater, even if you don't get out to an IMAX screen, um, definitely try not to watch it on like streaming, like w- without manual quality settings. Oh no. Yeah, no, I plan yeah, on yeah. getting it from the library when it's on uh, Blu-ray, which yeah, they're pretty good about getting them close to release date. It's it's just one of those movies where I could totally see most of the compression algorithms making complete noise out of m- many yeah. of the best shots of the movie. Yeah, that's fair. There's also a startling number of actors in Oppenheimer. Um, yeah, I heard hilarious. the cast is pretty big. Yeah, if Christopher Nolan wanted to, he could have advertised it like Wes Anderson does with his cast <laughs> list. Just showing everybody. I I genuinely didn't know that most of those people were in that movie. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I don't want to look at a list because I don't want to like spoil any potential. Yeah, you'll you'll enjoy it when cameos. someone else walks in and you're like, oh, you're also in this film. Holy shit! <laughs> you know that guy from Mad Men? He's Feynman. 